We spend a lot of effort before the season figuring out our strategies and tactics for drafts. But what about during the season? I'll ask Jeff Zimmerman about that and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, May the 26th. It's show number 18 of the 2023 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have a two-part feature expert interview with Jeff Zimmerman from Rotographs, the Launch Angle podcast, and the Process Fantasy Baseball Manual. In part one of our discussion, we'll talk about in-season decision-making, effectively monitoring player performance and the true advantage of two-star pitchers. And then later in part two, Jeff and I will talk about the cold months of May for Jorge Mateo and Trey Turner, about using rest-of-season projections, and about using a team value approach to ads and drops, and he'll have his boons and banes for this weekend's fab runs. We'll also have our weekly fantasy news update with Ray Murphy from Baseball HQ. We'll look at American League hitters including changes in the Angels outfield and downside dangers for Jose Abreu and Gunnar Henderson. We'll look at American League pitchers, including Seattle super rookie Bryce Miller and the situation in the Minnesota bullpen. Then we'll look at the National League hitters, including Cabrian Hayes and Elias Diaz, and the National League pitchers, including the Dodgers bullpen and their rotation, a buy-low prospect in Cincinnati, and Pittsburgh starters Luis Ortiz and Johan Oviedo. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the guys at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, Baseball HQ scouting team member Rob Gordon looks at Detroit third base prospect Colt Keith. In the Frequent Flyer, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Cincinnati left-handed starter Andrew Abbott. And in Extra Innings, I'll be talking about the pending arrival of the Robo-Umps. It's another big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Jeff Zimmerman is here and we're going to talk about in-season management. We're going to talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday full edition, it's part one of our feature expert interview with Jeff Zimmerman from Rotographs, the Launch Angle podcast, and the Process Fantasy Baseball Manual. Jeff, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. It's good to be back. It's, um, I don't remember when the last time we do it, but usually about at least once a year, maybe even twice. Um, it was also nice to see you in um, New York City to get to talk a bit. Watch a bit of K-State basketball in the uh, NCAA tournament, and they won that night, as I recall, and had a couple of beers and tried to make conversation over the din of the uh, St. Paddy's Day bands. They had a, two different bands, one upstairs and one downstairs. Like, one upstairs <laughs> wouldn't have been bad enough, and you know, you're like leaning over and screaming at each other like a couple of lunatics, and you're making out like two words out of every three, and still managed to have a pretty fun and interesting conversation. So it'll be a lot easier to have a fun and interesting conversation here. And I hope we get to do a couple of these this year, Jeff, because uh, we're going to be talking about your book, The Process, and gosh, we can't get through it in an hour. We could probably take four hours and not get through it. So we'll start by asking you what I always ask uh, our guest experts. How many drafts are you playing in this year, and how are your teams doing? I'm in about a dozen um, drafts this year. 
I've got five, and I'm even I'm sharing four of them with Tanner Bell. So, um, your co-author, yeah, the co-author. Um, we actually took a little bit of our funds from the book one time and just started playing leagues, and we just kind of keep rolling the money back in. And so this year we have a main event and an auction championship and a couple draft and holds that we've done together. So it's been fun. It's it like I said, it keeps things going. And then um I'm kind of all over the place. I actually this year I'm down about I think I cut my leagues in half. It was just became too much on the weekends. And um so I want to see where this is right now. I have time. I feel like, oh, I could have done more. But it's there's also at the end when you're looking at like each little category and you start having to pay more attention. Like right now, it's just like, oh, I'm just going to try to get as many stats as I can and not nitpick. But later on, I'll have to start nitpicking. And that's when it like started taking way too much time with too many leagues. And how are you doing team-wise? I'm kind of middle of the pack right now. I had um, some that were doing good or bad, but I don't know if I'm even in first place in a single league. Um, so, like I said, it's, I really struggled with pitching early on. I missed on that, and it's kind of been taking a while to kind of get things back going. Um, one team was exceptionally bad in, like, the online championship, which has 2,000-plus leagues. I was – and then they have an overall. I was, like, almost last, like dead <laughs> last. Was, and that's something to talk about. Yeah, it's like – it was – Um, you can go back and look. Like, they keep the weekly ranks – and. Even though I moved up and down, that one's locked on fifth to the bottom. And that team has actually moved up. I'm like middle of the pack now. So, I mean, you can definitely move up. I didn't give up on it. I don't, I'm not going to win any um, overall with it. But I, like I said, I want to keep grinding away and it's worked. But, man, it was like just nothing was going right to begin with. No one was hitting, just anything. So, it can always just turn around and – um like I said, if you just kind of guess wrong, you just have to kind of adjust and keep moving forward. In those NFBC leagues that have the overall component, one of the sort of basic assumptions that everybody uses is you have to have a balanced team across the categories because that's the only way you're going to be able to compete in the overall. Now that you're in a position where you kind of think in this league anyway, I got no chance in winning the overall. Is there an opportunity here for you to adjust your tactics for the rest of the season to maybe punt a category and move up strongly to try to do better in the individual league, which still pays a little bit enough to cover your costs anyways, or are you going to stick with the kind of balanced approach that NFPC is pretty much requires for the overall component? It depends on league to league. And I'm not really looking at that right now in any league. There's one that's pretty close. It's a, and it's got an overall that all my pitching's down and really for me to start catching up on wins and strikeouts, I'm just going to have to destroy ERA and whip in the process. So there I might have to make that decision is like, I can go one way or the other, but kind of the nice thing with hitting is like besides steals, if you're getting kind of almost any of them, or if you're getting like runs or home runs or average, you're kind of getting runs and RBIs at the same time. So those four are kind of like the easy ones to get. It's kind of tougher with pitching to like make up all five, you know? So, um, but with that league, it's, it's even across the board. So I can kind of gain everywhere, but other times it's just not possible to try to move up in 
certain categories. And yeah, I'd like to just get my money. Like almost all those leagues, the ones with the overall components is my goal is to win the league. I know a lot of people's like, oh, you put so much money for the overall. But what I found is I did good in TGFBI last year and it was like, I didn't even kind of, I mean, I was doing good, but it was like I had a good team for the league and I just kept grinding away that way. So I think that's one of the components is just like, I don't worry about the overall till like maybe two months to go. I'm still just grinding away, trying to get whatever stats I can, because who knows when I'll lose them. And early on, especially in that overall, I mean, I, I don't play in NFBC leagues for money, but I do play a couple of leagues, TGFBI, and then there's the Earth League. I, I play in an Ontario-based league here in Canada. And what I find is in the early going, when we know we can bounce up and down even in a 12-team league or a 15-team league. You can move around quite a bit in that first month, six weeks, eight weeks. But in the overall, man, can you bounce around. <laughs> you know, you can go from uh, two-thirds of the way down to one-third of the way up, you know, kind of thing. And, and it happens in a day or two. You, you look at the movement arrows and they tell you, oh, you moved up 160 places or, oh, you moved up 241 places because everything's still so tight and so volatile that it, it really does facilitate standings movement. But when in the season, Jeff, do you look at your standings, whether in the league or in the overall and say, I'm starting to get capped here. I have a floor, I have a ceiling and the ceiling's not high enough. I'll probably do a good look over the all-star game because it's kind of a break there where I don't have to do as much that Monday. I think it's working out where Monday we don't have to set our lineups or maybe like one team plays quickly. Won't be a ton of effort and just make sure that you can move the one year there was a team I was going to quit on or I wasn't quitting on but it was like I just couldn't spend the time it was just getting destroyed and um, literally the next week I was back in the running it was just kind of how it was is just look at the movement within the league to see how much you can still like how other teams are moving and that's kind of can be a good gauge if you can move up in um, one of my higher stakes leagues my online auction last week, it was, um, I moved up over 10 spots in the rankings. 10 that was just spots. An elite. Yeah. And so I was like, that's still, it's not going to be guaranteed every week, but if you look to see what everyone else is moving, like, oh, you can make up 10. It's not time to give up. Like, you know, maybe next week we can only make up nine, but that still puts you, you still should be trying heavily. And that team was, again, we picked the wrong pitching to start the season and a lot of them got hurt. So it was struggling for a couple of weeks. And then once we got things going, it, looked a lot better. I kind of just have a little bit more hope as the season goes on and not to quit. And maybe some of the other people will start quitting and then you can just start moving ahead of them in some of the counting stats. Yeah. Sad to say, but that's true, especially in the NFBC environment, because so many players have lots and lots of teams and they're naturally going to focus their attention where it has the most potential to do well. That is, if you're, if you have 10 teams and one of them's in last place and four of them are first or second, you're going to be focusing on the four that are in first or second. And then there are guys who just throw it in, throw in the towel altogether because football comes around. So there's lots of reasons to keep grinding. I always say that one of the reasons I keep trying is because I think the lesson I learned from trying to move from 10th to 9th are going to pay off someday when I'm trying to move from 2nd to 1st. The one thing that I always wait on is that um, trade deadline. It's not the, at the end of the year like anymore. Like They have to have it two months beforehand. There isn't the two of them. But that day, a lot of stuff can change. If you can guess right, guess the right closers that will change, you can really turn around your team on that weekend. So 
no matter what a team's doing is I will try my death to that weekend and kind of see how you come out of that for the next two weeks. Cause um, people's team, people above you could lose a couple closers. You could gain two. There's just playing time that changes. That's just a big week that the whole season gets changed around. I mean, in only leagues, it's huge, but in um, some of the shallower formats, it's one of those weeks that, I, I can't plan anything. Like you just have to start almost prepping double your prep time for that weekend. It used to be Jeff that another big day in, in the year was whenever that ARB uh, deadline passed and it was usually sometime late April, early May. And then there was another service time related deadline a little later on in May and early June. And that seems to have just vanished now with the CBA and the changes in how they treat the new players coming up and the benefits that accrue to teams that activate these guys earlier in the season, because they get benefits, I guess, if a guy wins certain amount of rookie of the year votes, all these kind of things. So how has the change in the way that the player, the teams are bringing up young prospects changed your outlook on how much movement is possible and how you go about making that movement? I should have noticed it more. I'm going to um, look into it. Look, it's too late for me to refigure out my draft strategy um, now. Like it's just, I'll have a whole off season to do it. But what I think is I will concentrate or like the, prospects that are brought up right now or so far have been on like winning teams and they kind of have that advantage. Like they want to win and the player can get the rookie of the year. They can get some of those advantages and it's the changes in the CBA made those players come up more. We'll see how things are. Cause it's about two weeks here when we get past the super two deadline, it's kind of guaranteed to be past it. We'll see if some of the um, weaker teams start bringing up their guys then like, so it may be one of those deals. If you want to prospect for a long part of the season, you should really target the guys on winning teams. That might be one of the things that come out of it, but we haven't seen exactly it sort of worked that way last year, but I think that's one thing that I found out that I'm going to be more cognizant of it's just maybe concentrate on like, or really look into like those top 10 rookies that are in triple a. Do you think that it has the potential to alter your ideas about how you want to structure your drafted team? That is throw a few more $1 guys in at the end in the expectation that you're going to be able to replace them at some point by astutely figuring out the, the prospect market and, and getting a, you know, getting a Bryce Miller to take a $1 pitcher spot. Yeah. I think the one thing, if, if I do that and I could see myself do it is I need to make sure, especially with my pitchers that instead of going like stars and scrubs the problem is is with those scrubs you're you're going to have to start them like you won't be able to stream them as much because you'll have the prospects on your bench possibly right away is that i may have to go with more more higher end pitchers just draft by the end of the 15th round it's almost have all nine done but i would only give me six hitters that's probably too many but at some point there it's like these are the nine i want to start the season with so at least I know, like, I'm kind of not streaming that last spot with unknown guys or someone I don't want to, and then kind of fill in the bottom with prospects or chances. Like the problem with, in some cases with the prospects, almost in every league, they're really not like on the IL or anything. So they're just taking up a bench spot. And with so few pitchers, like you have to just make sure that you have good enough ones to go. 
Yeah, that's a big part of it as well. So much of it, every one of these decisions depends to a large extent on your league rules and what you're, what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do. And the example I could use is at the st- start of the season when I was preparing my Tow Wars draft, it's at a 12-team AL only, and I thought I'm going to get at least one real top flight starter. That was Kevin Gosman. I ended up kind of by accident getting Christian Javier, but I thought, okay, I can live with that. And the rest of them, uh, I, I got Clay Holmes for for saves. And then the rest of them were all one and $2 guys. And my plan was, I thought I'll try to kind of preempt the market because our league rules allow us to go and, uh, and replace guys on our, on our towers rosters with guys who are still in the minor leagues. You, you have to bid a dollar and they have to play active for a week, but then you can reserve them and, you know, start streaming and that kind of stuff. And I had a, a couple of guys I was streaming anyway. And all of a sudden I end up with Tanner Bybee and I end up with, uh, Bryce Miller and I've got Gavin Williams on my um, on my bench waiting for it to, to get called up, and I think that there's going to be increasingly those kinds of opportunities depending on your league rules, because of course, as we know, if you have to wait by league rule to wait until one of those top pitchers or a guy like uh, I don't know Christian Encarnacion Strand or one of these hotly anticipated guys comes up, if you have to wait until he's actually in your pool, like the NFBC usually requires then it's going to be a free-for-all, and then you're into the realm of how much do I bid on this guy. Yeah, and even the difference with those, and I'm in the Tout Wars Mixed, is like there's times you guys can't even find starters. Like I'm in the NL only, and I was trying to – I finally paid up for his replacement, but then um, Jazz Chisholm got hurt. Jazz got hurt. Yeah. But um, taking the zero isn't such a big deal, but in the mixed one, taking a zero for the week is – it's tough. Like I've been known to do it and you'll notice some of the vets in the league will do it over that all-star break week where you're like, okay, we got a few games. The zero isn't as big a deal. Remember one year I added Bo Bichette that week, but that's kind of like taking a zero or, you know, knowingly is pretty rough in that league because you will just fall behind. Like if you take a zero, if one of your like worst pitchers doesn't go, you might actually move up instead of, you know, having some guy get a six ERA and two strikeouts. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Jeff Zimmerman from Rotographs, Fangraphs, the Launch Angle Podcast, and the co-author of the excellent fantasy baseball manual, The Process. And Jeff, it's The Process I'd really like to focus in on in this talk. Uh, you and your partner, Tanner Bell, you mentioned, uh, past Baseball HQ Radio guest, and you put out a book called The Process, and it comes out in the preseason, and a lot of it has to do with draft planning because of the timing, but there's also a really huge and really good section on in-season management. And you start the section by saying, we should be using the same valuation and market considerations from our preseason prep when we're thinking about our in-season management, but that we have to find the right balance between what you called not overreacting and not acting fast enough. What did you mean by that? That's pretty much the end season one, how it's managed. It's like you'll have some guy come up, and I'm trying to – his last name was Diaz. He was with the A's. hit like three home runs one week. Jordan Diaz, just recently, and it's like, holy cow. Like, he's got power, and now he's back in the minors. It's like, well, if you don't go add Diaz right now, someone else is going to. And is that power legit? Is he going to keep doing it? Is he going to be like Brent Rooker? And, you know, like everyone probably thought, you know, oh, it's just Brent Rooker. He's been around, but now he's, I think he's top 15 fantasy option right now. Yep. So um, 
that's always the toughest thing is to try to figure out that balance. Um, I always call a lot of guys are like roster and bench. It's like, all right, I get him. I don't really might not want to start him, especially with a pitcher that might have like one good game. Ben Lively is one that kind of had one good game. He came out. There's some stuff that looks good with him, but it's like, it's just one game. Like, I don't, I don't trust it, but I'll just go ahead and bench him. But sometimes you can't, like you have to throw him in there. And if you don't, someone else will like, you know, they've seen the same three home run game. And um, so it's, it's tough to figure out how, how much to over, if, if you should keep doing with that. I think the one key with it all is if it is even someone like this and you're not, there's no, you're not sure that they're going to be productive in the future. It's just don't overspend on it. Don't spend any resources. If you plan on dropping them the next week, you don't want, like I said, you don't want any regrets. Like I just think like men bids is the way to go with that. And if that's what the plan is, it's just to see what's going to happen. Um, but I mean, when that um, McLean came up, all of his projections looked good. It looked like he had a good spot in the rotation or in the lineup, and I I went pretty heavily with him. He was the guy that I replaced um, Jazz Chisholm with in my um, NL only league labor, and I was like, I paid up for him. I paid forty one dollars. I was like, well, I'm not sure. I'd already kind of spent some money to begin this year, and I wasn't going to be able to get the top guys that come over. So I was like, I think he's the equivalent of like the third third or fourth guy that might come over between leagues at the trade deadline. So I was like, I'm willing to take have, add him now and not have to, and have two more months of him and then wait for the trade deadline. And we should point out the labor is a hundred dollar, not a thousand dollar fab budget. So you spent 40%. I'll tell you what, that's a big investment to make in that format. You do get the benefit, as you said, of having him for longer than if you wait till the trade deadline and hope that you get that crossover guy. And I think that's something that we have to keep in mind. You refer in the process to some work by noted behavioral economists about fast side versus slow side decision-making, and you say that the current fantasy sports ecosystem is kind of to blame for the urge to make fast side decisions that should be slow side decisions. How can fantasy managers avoid falling into that trap of pulling the trigger too quickly and too aggressively? It it is one of the hardest things to learn. Um, I think one one great way is to keep a diary. I guess a diary is like the right term, a log or go back and look at the end of the season. Or even as the season's going, like I bid this guy, I'm dropping him a week later. I spent this much like, no, next time when this comes up, I feel bad about it. We should spend less or I missed it by just this much. I should spend a little bit more. I kind of know some people that I know a person that plays really good and wants to end the season with 20% of their fab. And I'm like, you could have done something else during the season with that. Like th- that's, it's not the right approach in any way I can explain it. Like, I just think like they want to be in the lead with it. And it's just like, wait a second. Like, aren't you trying to win the league? Um, I talking to some people recently, I might have to go ch- change that line a little bit. It's not change it. I think that approach is a great for fantasy football and with the crossover that we have. I think a lot of people like in football, if you there's so few like running backs that become available, people just really jump on them and um they have to get them. There's just no one else that's coming. 
I'm going to spend 80% of my budget on this one guy. And it may be worth it 100%. But with fantasy baseball, it's such a long season. There's so many injuries that happen, so much grinding to do. I, It's just not a good plan to be spending that level of um, money. Unless, like I said, there's a few cases in like AL or NL only leagues that that one guy that comes up could make a huge difference. But otherwise, no, I'm just, it's not, um, it, it's really like a tough balance. I've, I've seen actually some people on the other side, like you said, like most people spend too much. I think that it's how can I win this week or how can I get this guy? I don't want to lose out on this guy, but I think it's fine losing out on, on a guy. I'd go further and might even say that it's beneficial to lose out on most of the guys because most of them don't pan out. And there's an element of probability in there, which you do discuss in your book, The Process. And you also said, and I admire this about the book because it's called The Process. And a lot of it is about developing processes to get these decisions to be more rational and more studied. And you said that the valuation of any player, whether before the season or during the season, is based on two components. You have the actual skills and you have playing time. Now in season, we expect those skills to be stable, but the playing time could fluctuate with circumstance, injuries, replacement, poor performance, those kinds of things. And that creates an opportunity for the fantasy manager to basically arbitrage his or her own knowledge with the playing time estimate of the projections. So how does that opportunity work and how can we exploit it? I think the key with that one is I write up an article on it. There's some other ones, especially with hitting is just look at the lineups and where things have changed. Um, Garrett Hampson um, had kind of just, I think he's now playing center field. It's been off and on with Michael Harris. Like, but there for a while he was playing every day. He's runs a lot. Everyone's liked him in the past. It's just like, he needs some playing time and it's like, Oh, we can get like a week out of him and everything will be good. So I, it's those opportunities you really have to look for. John Birdie, it was last year when he just started leading off and stealing every day. It's like, oh, it was the opportunity. We knew he could kind of steal bases, but he was just not playing. And once he started playing and hit a little bit that they kept him there, he took some teams to some championships, really allowed people to move up and stolen bases. Um, so it, it's kind of really – look around to see where some changes have been um, kind of maybe like the easiest way. And in most leagues they have like, what's the stats over the last two weeks It's like, don't even look at the stats. Just look at the plate appearances or at bats and like, Oh, who's got the most bats. You could do the same thing at fan graphs. Like look over the last week, look over the last two weeks on plate appearances. And you know, those guys are probably leading off for a team or hitting higher in the lineup or playing more. And then you can see who's, who's got that advantage. And, um, I even remember during the preseason, I had someone mention Brent Rooker was really high in their projections, but they're just like, I just don't know if he's going to play. You know, it's like, I can't take this chance, but everything um, they talked about was pointing to him. And I think every time Brent Rooker does something, like they're just mad about it. Cause like they had kind of spotted him that he just hadn't needed, you know, he needed the playing time and could have been added in like a draft and hold. But the talent was there. And so finally someone gave him full at bats and this is what he's doing. 
You also argue that by focusing too intently on playing time changes when we're doing these in-season player assessments, as you mentioned, monitoring the plate appearances, looking for lineup shifts, which you can do in roster resource and a couple of other places, a guy all of a sudden bounces to the first or second slot in the batting order. Now he's got a playing time difference that we might be able to take advantage of. But you say that there's a danger there that if you're focusing too much on just on playing time, you might miss the less obvious and less frequent, frankly, change in the actual skill level. How does that work? Yeah, it's, it's the skills a little bit harder to find sometimes, but um, Jose Abreu would be a perfect one right now where it's like his power was off in the second half last year. We've had people with, you know, you know, had their power off, but it's not come back right now. And, but he's playing every day and you're like, well, I'm getting the at bat. So I'm going to, you know, grind my way there, but it's just with no production. And this year is the first time I've really accepted having players. Like you're just going to have to roster players that aren't playing all the time to probably 15 leagues and even into 12s. Um, there's just so many teams platooning guys that there's just no way to have a good team that doesn't have some kind of platoon going on. It's I, it's just the state of the game. Either they're really bad and playing every day or you have to roster someone from the Rays. There's only like three guys in the Rays right now that play every day. The rest of them are all in part-times even. Um, Lau and Low both are that way, and they both could probably be rostered. It's it's just a change in the game, and I think it's a hard thing for me to accept because I was like, oh, I just kind of want someone that's playing every day, but they're just not available. It, they're gone. The game's changed. Live with it. And like I said, unless you're maybe like in a 10-team league, um, mixed league, you might be able to find those guys. But even in 12s, I'm happen to be like, well, I just have to know I'm not going to get a full week of at-bats. I know another indicator that you guys mentioned about skills changes was, and it seems pretty obvious when you look at it in hindsight, is pitchers changing their pitch mix or figuring out a new way to shape their various pitches, add spin, you know, improve location, all of these kinds of things. So if their playing time stays the same and you kind of gloss over it because that's all you're looking for, hey, he's starting every fifth day before, he's starting every fifth day now, it's pretty much the same guy. But in fact, pitchers especially can change the actual profile of their skills and make themselves better. I know the same thing's true of, of hitters to a lesser extent, guys change their launch angles and so forth, but pitchers, it seems from reading the process are the area where we can really see skills changes often in season. Yeah. Um, this place baseball HQ has this, um, arsenal report. I think it's weekly that comes out and tell, goes over pitchers that have changed what they're doing. And th if I ever hear anything about it, I have to dive in a lot of times, like really like the pitchers really not change anything. They're just kind of rearranging deck chairs, but that's probably one of the biggest things that you can find during the season. And, probably more than like adding a pitch. A lot of times it's dropping one, especially now, or I noticed someone the other day that did that. I can't remember who off the top of my head, but it was like, this pitch just wasn't working for them. They dropped them and they've kind of taken a step forward. And I was like, Oh, they're actually, um, um, a little more interesting right now because of that. So 
Yeah, it's with the pitchers, they can just change so quick or lose their velocity. That's kind of a big one for going down. Um, one thing I like to do, especially with pitchers, is usually it takes about three weeks for their a lot of the strikeout and walk rates to stabilize. I'll run like a three the last three weeks of um, stats and see if anyone just pops out that doesn't look like they belong there. And um, it's kind of like, oh, he's doing a little bit better than I thought. You know, it's just like, have, have and then I can kind of dig in a little bit more. But um, with hitters, it takes so long to see if anything's changed. But, um, yeah, that's just the one that's so much, so tough that you almost, almost have to build a narrative like they were hurt. But that didn't really work with the people that drafted um, Taylor Ward. So I don't know. With hitters, I almost trust the major league teams better. And they'll know if a guy's like seeing things better or he's um, healthy now is that he just moves up in the lineup and they're playing him more. Um, I just, I'm just not a scout that can tell like, oh, this hitters, you know, with my eye test with them, I just can't tell what's happening. You talked in the process about the advantages of short-term considerations when you're looking at pitchers in particular. We, we often do this, right? We check our streaming pitcher. Oh, you know, Colorado at home, like Colorado at the pitcher's home and then Detroit, you know, and you think to yourself, that's a guy I don't mind having on my team, even if it's only for the short run because of, because of the schedule. And these streaming decisions, Jeff, seem pretty straightforward. But you also noted in the book that hitter streaming can be we really useful as a huge amount of production. It's a little more labor intensive, but you said in the uh, book that you had done a study that both hitters and pitchers a lot of their production gets left on the benches and in the free agent pools, when you calculate value weekly on a weekly basis, rather than on a full season basis, uh, tell us about that study and, and the conclusions that you reached. With pitchers, one deal with them on it being a five categories that you're trying to get is there'll, there'll be relievers that really is on no one's radar that'll get a win and a save through a week, just through like happenstance and have a good ERA and whip. So there's a lot of pitchers that aren't rostered that are like the le- the weekly winners. And that's a lot of reason why is those, like those counting stats. If some, you know, some reliever gets two wins, like they're going to be on the top and no one's going to have any idea with that. It's kind of a, there's some ways you can kind of go after those guys that have a better chance, but there's just no way to miss on them on that with the hitters it becomes a balance but i of this guy looks good for the whole season i really can't drop him but he's got those two games to start the week almost no one and people will always be like start your studs if you have any replacement level guy it's almost always advantageous to start the four over the two. Um, if you had like Lane Thomas and Mike Trout, like who's going to have more stats over the whole season? Lane Thomas for, you know, four games or the equivalent of 600 and Mike Trout for 300. It's just like the counting stats come up that it's almost impossible for even stars to make up those two games. And maybe you might have multiple stars that you get the best one and you can kind of sit someone like Santander and him instead of for Thomas or, but I think 
that's the key is like you almost have to consider it on like a full season basis of how many at bats you're going to get going into like the week or so forth. It's like, okay, this player, if it's a weekly one, it's like, oh, he's only getting 500 plate appearances over the week and this other guy's getting 700. What do you think the difference is going to be for the stats? And um, for a lot of that, I just, while I'll disagree and I can look at the numbers they have, um, the guys at Razball do a great job of putting out weekly projections. And um, like I said, I, I, I can change them around. I'll change the plate appearances. I'll look at that. But that's just a great place to start. They charge for it. It's about a dollar a week. The amount of time it saves me is easily the dollar well spent. <laughs> you know, it's like I can I can't look at all this. They kind of take the pictures and the hand in this into account. So that's usually my starting spot. And then I can kind of adjust from there. It's a common trope on Twitter to ask, would you rather have two starts from, and they name an unrostered pitcher who's pretty much viewed as mediocre, but he's facing two lesser teams, or would you rather start an established single start from a top tier starter against a, maybe a tougher opponent? So let's bring this into the real world and just make it how valuable are two start pitchers despite a variance in their actual skills? they are valuable. There's there's no way around it to get the strikeouts for the chance for a win. Um, you really have to go down from a one start. Like the talent level really has to drop um, to not have that two start guy be worth it. Now that said, know your team. If you're crushing ERA and whip and you've got everything going great, you can throw those guys out. But if you're kind of struggling with those two, if you get two bad starts and they bring them down, that's um, just an issue that it's kind of dependent on the team. And the other thing is um, with Roto Leagues, that's kind of, you have to deal with that balance. A lot of people just play points weekly leagues and almost in every case, there's, you, it's almost impossible to get negative points from your pitchers, and those two start guys are just—they're—they're they're amazing. Like you have to throw, have as many of them as you can to throw out every week to try to win. So, um, the format matters a ton. Um, yeah, points weekly leagues just run your numbers, and almost every time your two start guys are going to be over almost every one start because it's—it's it's just a thing of you know if they get four innings or. You know, they go nine total innings that week. No other starter is going to go nine innings. And just the way the points come in, they'll be more valuable. In the book, you make an excellent point about the nature of player value and how it changes over the season because of the context of the fantasy team that the players on that roster. How does that work? Um, For an example, I'll just go to one of my teams. We'll talk about it. I've actually, well, now I'm down to three. At one point I had um, four closers, just the way things worked out, I kind of took some chances and ended up with Puck, Chafin, and not um, I can't remember someone else. That was it was like a 50-50 shot early in the season, Estevez. And I was just like, all right, I'll take some shots and you know, hopefully I can hit on one of these. Well, I hit on all three. Other teams didn't hit on any. But in that case, it's like for me, I'm winning saves, but at some point those guys I just will have zero value to me. Like I'm going to have enough saves that 
there's no way someone's going to get second in it. So, like I said, yeah, each save that they accumulate, their value to me just keeps going drops. But so some other teams where other teams don't have saves, since I'm hoarding them all, they would have a lot of value. Ideally, I'd be in a tra- that would be in a trading league. This not the case with this league, so I would just have to drop them. But it would just become worthless to me um, if I was just to hold on to them because, like I said, they're what they're giving me just. It doesn't help me. I'll probably at some point just have to go with some more starters. But the one thing with closers is I found out, like I lost AJ Puck in that league, is like they're so fickle that I'm going to just try to go to whatever I want to end up as my saves total and then let them go. You know, it's going to be like, all right, I finally got there because who knows, like I could lose three of them next week. The injuries also, it's just one of those deals that I'll take my saves when I can get them. And then when they disappear, I'll move on to something else. Yeah, and at least in some instances, you've got closers that are established closers on teams that just don't generate a lot of wins. And so you have to take that into account as well. But I like the idea of just saying, I want to have, knowing what I know about this league and having been in leagues like this for a while, I need 84 saves. And at 84 saves, I'm happy. And then I'm just going to dump all of them because I can use the slots more advantageously with starters or whatever your league rules allow you to use. Uh, One of the things that you mentioned, and I don't think gets enough commentary, even though we all know about it, is when you're looking at players to consider for your roster is what contributions do they make to the categories? And I think that you guys made a a really strong point about that in the fact that you have to look at not what amount of stats is this guy going to get me in some abstract fashion, but what amount of stats is this guy going to get me in those categories? And how is that going to affect my positions in those categories and thus the overall points? Yeah. I mean, and that's the case in like this league, we'll go back to it. Like if I look and there's some, some guy with saves comes on the wire, I just ignore him. Like there's, I'm not spending a dollar on him and I'm know he's going to go for more, but I just don't care. There are other leagues such as my TGFBI. Um, someone dropped um, Fairbanks recently and, I dropped over 10% of my budget because I need some saves. Um, I have Clay Holmes, which finally got another one after like a month or more of not having anything. And it's just like, I just kind of have whiffed on it all. So in in some leagues, I don't care. And in other ones, like I really need to get those saves. And there's some leagues that way with them um, steals. They seem to be a little bit more available this year. It's kind of nice with the new rules. There's some players that are floating around that you can kind of find on the wire. CJ Abrams, I've seen kind of hit the wire a few times. I've seen um, Leody Veras, um, a lot of Miles Straw. Like, I don't think Miles Straw would ever got dropped last year if he had 10 saves or 10 steals. So that's when you can kind of make up. But it's kind of almost those two in standard Roto that's really tough to, um, that you can kind of go after with one without going after everything else. There's some other formats, especially like ones with quality starts. There's very few guys with quality starts, and even if they're bad, so someone like Joe Kelly or not, isn't it the pitcher for the um, Diamondbacks, Kelly? Merrill Kelly. But yeah, Mer- Merrill. He seems to always try to get. He always seems to get a quality start. It might not be dominating, but he's one that was like, oh, if he showed up on the wire, you might have to just spend a ton just to kind of go after him to get those quality starts, is get those guys that go long into games. Well, Jeff, I can't recommend the process 
highly enough. Uh, if you don't already have your copy of it, I know it's a little late for taking advantage of all the excellent work that you guys did about draft prep, but boy, this in-season stuff is really good. And we'll touch on more of it in just a few minutes. We'll take a quick break and talk some more about in-season management in, uh, right after we get the news done. All right. Jeff Zimmerman writes at Rotographs and in the process fantasy baseball manual and appears regularly on the Launch Angle podcast. He'll be back a little later to talk about the cold months of May of Jorge Mateo and Trey Turner. We'll talk about using rest of season projections and using a team value approach to ads and drops. And of course, he'll have his boons and banes for this weekend's fab runs. Coming up next, we have our Market Watch Player News Reports with Ray Murphy from BaseballHQ.com. That's coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio, but right now it's time in the show when I get to let you know about an item of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In Playing Time Tomorrow, analyst Brian Rudd digs into the rosters in all five American League Central teams, including the outlook for the Cleveland rotation with all those good rookies and the pending returns of Tristan McKenzie and Aaron Savali, and the outlook for the Minnesota rotation with the pending return of Kenta Maeda. Playing Time Tomorrow is just another great resource at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our weekly news review and update. And here with the latest is Ray Murphy, Code General Manager, Projections Expert, Writer, and Analyst at BaseballHQ.com. Ray, welcome back to the show. Glad to be here, Patrick. I would wish you a happy Memorial Day weekend, but, you know, you're Canadian at all. So, happy regular weekend. Well, I would have wished you a happy Victoria Day weekend, but, you know... (laughs) <laughs> same same kind of thing. It was actually you last, say, last week. You say potato. <laughs> yeah, I say uh, crisps. <laughs> I could do this all day. Yeah, no kidding. And I, our listeners are probably afraid we might. So let's get on exactly. with it. To, uh, starting with our American League hitters in Los Angeles, it's fair to say that Angels outfielder Taylor Ward has been one of the season's disappointments for his fantasy managers. A $22 player last year, according to Baseball HQ's player link page. Seventh round ADP this season, $20 player in Tout Wars. And so far, about a $9 guy, four homers, 200 plate appearances, 226 batting average. Not good. Jock Thompson covers the Angels for playing time tomorrow. The roster forecasting feature at BaseballHQ.com. And he says in this week's column, the team is running out of patience with Taylor Ward. What does that mean for fantasy managers? Yeah, I think Jock characterized this season for Ward as a roller coaster, which I thought was a little unfair because roller coasters actually have high points, right? And fun, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, there are actually good parts, and it, you really got to squint to find them with Ward. You know, his batting average has been down and below 250 since mid-April. He hasn't hit a home run since May 2nd. He's, his slash line is at 231 batting average, 306 OBP, 329 slug. That all adds up to a... 635 OPS, which is, you know, needless to say, bleak. If you go under the hood, uh, you know, a lot of his problems center around the quality of his contact. He's still making pretty decent contact overall. His walks are down a little bit, which sort of indicates he's probably pressing a little bit. Also indicating he's pressing is that his chase rate is doubled, which means he's swinging at balls out of the zone that he's not going to be able to do anything with anyway. Uh, And his barrels have been cut in half. So there's just not a lot of hard contact going on here, which means there's really no reason to nothing to hang your hat on. If you're looking for, you know, signs of a turnaround, which is probably why the angels are, as Jock said, running out of patience. 
And depending on how you look at it, Ray, I think you could say they might already have run out of patience. What happens if finally they say Taylor Ward has to be pushed aside? Well, I think he's actually getting pushed aside. And you know whether the Angels had more patience or not, Mickey Moniak is, has shown up in Anaheim in the last couple of weeks and has presented himself as, at least at the moment, a superior alternative to Taylor Ward. So the Angels are reacting by running with the hot hand. Uh, Yamoniak initially came up as sort of the extra outfielder, bumped Brett Phillips off the roster, uh, but now he's slipped into a strong side platoon with Ward, where Moniak is getting the bulk of the um, bulk bulk of the at bats against right-handed pitching. You know, if you remember, Moniak is sort of a you know long and storied history here for a former prospect, a for a former you know first round first pick, you know, a 1-1 draft pick, uh, ended up coming over to the Angels last year. I, I think that was in the deadline deal with uh, Logan O'Hoppy, where Brandon March went back to Philadelphia, right? Yeah. Um, and his, his you know, Moniak finally last year before the trade, after being a bust of a prospect, had started to develop into a guy who looked like he could be at least a fourth outfielder. So he looked like he was going to be sort of the in-house replacement for Marsh. Um, but now this year he's come up after a pretty decent start at AAA and he's just raking. He's 13 for 31. More importantly, 10 of the 13 hits are for extra bases, including four home runs. He's still managed to steal two bases, even though he's been on second base almost every time he hits the ball, which, you know, sort of implies that, you know, there's some real speed there. He's raking against right handed pitchers, got three consecutive starts in left field over Ward sat down against the lefty the other night, but you sort of expect that. But Jock thinks certainly as long as Moniak is out playing Ward, and right now it's not close, that Moniak is going to be in there against all right-handed pitchers. This is something that strikes me as kind of perverse about how we think about baseball, but we look at a guy like Moniak and he's a, he's a, failed prospect, if you will, at least as far as Philadelphia was concerned, he never did find his way. And sometimes it just takes a little longer. The uh, famous baseball HQ, Alex Rodriguez, 10 steps to stardom kind of thing, a, a few failures and some maturity and stuff. But he comes up, he's 13 for 31, despite 65% contact. So he's hitting 419. I don't know what his BABIP is, what his hit rate is, but it must yeah. be off the, off the charts. And he's got four home runs in his 10 base hits. You know, at, at some point perverse as it is, don't we have to look at this and think this isn't a sign that I should sign him. This might be a sign that I shouldn't. Yeah, fair. You have to factor, he's going to cool off. He's not going to hit 419 all season. I think we're pretty confident of that. Um, you know, and that brings the conversation back to where we started this segment, which is that, Ward's been terrible with no real sign of it turning around, right? Now, if you think about Ward from last season, you know, that was really a roller coaster. He started gangbusters, went ice cold for a stretch of time, and then came back and was, you know, and ended up ending the year pretty decent. But we haven't seen any of the good Ward. We haven't seen any of the bad Boniac. We know both of those things exist, but, you know, are, are both of those going to flip to the other side of the coin? And how quickly? The, that's kind of the, the calculus. Oh, and then there's Joe Adele still working around in Anaheim. If you want curtain number three, uh, Joe Adele is, I, I guess, probably the best way we could put it at this point is doing Joe Adele things in AAA. He's hitting a lot of home runs. He's walking a little bit more than he did before, but he's also still striking out a ton. I can trust his outfield. I haven't seen him, but I can trust his outfield defense is still probably a circus. But 
you know, he's still the next man up if they need one here, whether it's because Ward stays bad and they decide to send him down or something happens in, to Trout or uh, Hunter Renfro or something like that. So, you know, Adele should still be on the radar. He could also be a trade tri chip come July. So that could be another way he could find his way into the picture. So, yeah, there's a lot of question marks here. Not a lot we can write in ink in the Angels outfield at the moment. Last week, we went through a couple of players in Ryan Bloomfield's speculator column. Uh, he was looking at unexpected upsides, kind of riffing on the uh, baseball forecaster up and down, upside, downside predictions or projections that we have. And this week, he's repeated the exercise with downside guys who are surprisingly downside guys. And one of the hitters he mentioned might be the biggest shock of the 2023 season, which is the complete flame out of Houston first baseman Jose Abreu. Yeah, really just stunning. Uh, you know, Ryan made a list of 30 hitters on this downside list. Uh, you know, the top ADP guy from the preseason was Julio Rodriguez. Uh, but, you know, in terms of just magnitude of disappointment, it's hard to find one worse than Abreu. Um, Jose Abreu, I don't know if you heard this, Patrick, but him and I have something in common. Uh, we have the same number of major league home runs this year. That's, uh, of course, zero. Well, don't be <laughs> bragging because I'm in that group too. Okay, you want to join the club of people who haven't hit home runs? You know, we, we, we are power hitters on the ilk of Jose Abreu at the moment, Patrick. Um, Abreu, seriously, his last big league home run was last September. That's now 260 plate appearances. Um, and again, much like we were talking about with Ward, if you go under the hood with his skills, you know, it's hard to find a lot of reason for optimism. Uh, his full, his half season trend of our expected power index uh, over the last three halves is, you know, 119, which is 19% above average, then 92, which is 8% below, and now 73. So 27% below and, you know, drifting into very much the danger zone here. Uh, his batting average skills, not much better. He's currently hitting 215, but the Expected batting average from based on his quality of contact, et cetera, is 190. So, I mean, if as bad as he's been, if anything, he's been lucky, which is you know kind of kind of horrifying to think about. You know, no no indication of injury. You know, he's got you know. I think the only thing I can say here is he's got a three year contract, so the Astros are likely to be more patient with him. But that's just an opportunity for him to keep hanging goose eggs on your fantasy team, which is why. Ryan's bottom line recommendation here was that Abreu might be waiver wire fodder, fodder if this goes on much longer. Yeah. When I read the article, I went and looked at baseballreference.com for some stuff and I didn't get past the slugging percentages. You know, he led baseball a few years ago, I think in 2020 over 600 and, uh, all of a sudden now he's down to 250 and it's, it's been a real plummet, 600, 500, 400. 200, you know, kind of thing. And it's, uh, it's really, uh, really something to see. And I don't know, I see a lot of recommendations that maybe he's a buy low candidate and I just don't see it. I can't see that I would offer anything of any substance to get Jose Abreu onto my roster at this point, because I have him on a roster and I desperately like to get him off it. Yeah. I mean, if he was 30, maybe that would be a different story, but you know, he's 36 and you know, that's, you know, we know plenty of 36-year-olds who suddenly, you know, fell off the cliff, right? Whose, you know, skills just <clears throat> reached the tipping point where they could, they were no longer competitive major league hitters. That's within the realm of possible outcomes here. Well, it certainly was the uh, outcome for me. <laughs> and as I said, I haven't hit a home run this year at all. 
Let's move on to another Jose on the list. Uh, there was Jose Miranda in Minnesota on Ryan's speculator list, but a more interesting name for me was Gunnar Henderson of Baltimore because he came into the season with a lot of momentum after about 125 or so late plate appearances last year. Had four homers, a, a stolen base, batted around 260 or so, supported by 12% walk rate, 71% contact, which isn't great, but isn't horrible in this day and age, and a 127 power index, 27% above league average. But this year, it hasn't been like that. Yeah, very surprising, because like you say, that cup of coffee he got late last season really seemed like he demonstrated that he had his big league sea legs, I guess we'd say. Um, you know, then that just raised expectations for this year. But so far, you know, as high as the expectations were, you know, the results have been bottom of the barrel this year. You know, uh, he hit below the Mendoza line, you know, 187 for the month of April. Uh, in May, now he's around 170. So things are not trending positively at all. One stolen base in just two tries because, of course, he's not reaching first base that often. Uh, the contact is down below 70%, which gets into the danger level. He's drawn a bunch of walks. He's walking 17% of the time, which you know begs the age-old question, why is anybody throwing him a strike? Um, but you put those two together, and Ryan makes a good point. When you've got a 17% walk rate and a 70% contact rate, that's a, he's taken a lot of pitches. And it might just be that the entire approach here is too passive. Every now and then, you know, when he does put bat on ball, the power skills look okay. Um, but that's just being swamped by the contact problems and the fact that there isn't enough of a contact denominator, really. So Ryan, you know, summarized and said he needs to cut down on the caves. He needs to run more, get more aggressive at the plate. And if those things don't happen, you know, the, you know, the, the revised season outcome here is probably in the neighborhood of a 230 batting average with more like 15 home runs and five stolen bases where we might've been thinking about, you know, more like 250 and 2020 entering the year. Yeah. And with all the infield prospects in the Baltimore organization, I'd suggest the downside might be playing quite a bit in Norfolk rather than playing in Baltimore. But we should point out that uh, Gunnar Henderson has showed some signs of life in May. Uh, he's got three home runs in the month so far. He's batting 234. Not so bad, uh, 347 on base percentage, which is about what he had last year because of that 15% walk rate. But he's still not making contact, although his ISO is up to 250, which is pretty elite. Uh, Shoya Otani's 254. What are you going to be watching for over the next while and for how long to see if Gunnar Henderson's uh, snapping out of it and turning things around? Yeah, I think Ryan has the right idea here with uh, his suggestion about the passivity. And if I'm looking for signs of a turnaround, I might be looking for a little more aggression, maybe even a dip in the walk rate or some improvement in the contact rate, um, you know, some combination of those. As far as the how long will I wait, uh, you know, th that's always a tougher thing to figure out. But I think my idea here will probably be to watch how patient the Orioles are. And let's see if Henderson is in the lineup every day or if he starts sitting you know, one game out of three, or if they give him three straight games off to, you know, clear his head or one of those kind of things, that might be enough for me to start looking at my waiver wire for other options, because if the Orioles are starting to waver in there, oh, he'll come out of it, uh, you know, mindset, then I, I, if I see signs of that, then I'm going to start reconsidering my options too. Well, I did see one sign of it when they brought up Joey Ortiz, not once, but twice, and luckily for Gunnar Henderson, Joey Ortiz was really doing nothing with the bat. And I think that's who they replaced 
Gunnar Henderson with a third, a couple of games I noticed and didn't, like I said, he didn't do anything, but boy, there's better bats in uh, Norfolk than there, than uh, Joey Ortiz. That's for sure. Including Jordan Westberg, who's like yeah. hammering the heck out of the ball down there. I think he's a shortstop by trade, but certainly wouldn't look. So is Gunnar Henderson. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's the problem. I don't know. And, and speaking of that, you got Jorge Mateo in Baltimore as well, who uh, makes Gunnar Henderson look like, uh, you know, Cal Ripken out there <laughs> with the bat because what's he batting 105 or something this month? Something yeah, like that. Yeah, it's brutal. It's brutal. Um, yeah. And that's, so that's the thing. I mean, you would think that, you know, Henderson, Henderson's pedigree alone in a battle of struggling left side of the infielder guys gives him an edge over Mateo. But as you say, Mateo does bring, you know, uh, you know the, the, the Mark Boyinger batting average, but also the, you know, something resembling the Mark Boyinger glove. So uh, maybe he gets a little rope because of that, but uh, you know, Mateo is, you know, ta- in a horrible tailspin right now. So the, he, the Orioles to your point, can't sit down all of these guys. What they can do is they can, you know, if they want to turn the infield over, they can send Henderson to Norfolk. So we got to watch out for that. Going over to the pitchers, one of the Baseball HQ features we don't often discuss here at Baseball HQ Radio is the daily matchups report at the site. Uh, That's where our analysts look through the day's pitcher matchups and identify strong, medium, and weak matchups for the individual pitchers. Obviously not totally applicable to fantasy managers in weekly moves leagues, but of course very good for DFS and daily moves leagues. But the reason I mention it is because analyst Brian Entrican compiled the list for Wednesday of this week, and uh, out of his three top picks in the American League, they all came through. It is, and you shouldn't sound so so surprised about that, PD, because you know that does happen. In all seriousness, this is the uh, you know we've reached the point in the season where the matchup tool is really in its sweet spot. We've got enough sample sizes; a lot of it is based on last 30 days results for both pitcher and opposing team. Um, you know, so even those last 30 days now are, you know, come from late April and are, you know, from the teeth of the season, you know, the month of April, uh, you know, while that sample size is growing, the tool is still useful, but it really does sort of, you know, peak around now. Uh, you know, that uh, Wednesday night you were talking about with uh, Brian, uh, they, uh, the, the top pick of the night was Joe Ryan, uh, who was home against the Giants and, you know, he went five innings with five hits, a run, two walks, and four strikeouts, which, you know, even by Ryan's standards this year actually was just okay. Ryan has been dominant a lot of the time. Tremendous. But, uh, but, but otherwise, uh, you know, Bryce Miller hung up a uh, PQS four outing. He was home against the Oak, against Oakland, so you could see why that was a good spot for Brian to flag. But uh, six innings of no one runs, five strikeouts. And then Shane McClanahan had a tougher matchup against the Jays, but the numbers, the ratings said to trust McClanahan's skills against the Jays, and he was great with uh, you know going seven innings, one run on four hits, no walks, and seven strikeouts. So that was a gem by, uh, by, by any standard. PQS five for that one as well. So if we add them up, eighteen innings, three wins, a one ERA, one twenty two WHIP, sixteen strikeouts. That's not bad for a night's work. Uh, when do those daily matchups reports actually land on the site? Like, what time of day do you expect them? So the the, the matchup rep- there's two different answers to that question. The matchup report themselves, the raw data that gives you the score for each matchup, is there any time? You can go to teams, starting pitchers on the top menu on the site, and you can pull up. You know, up to eight days in advance. You can look at today's report. You can look at tomorrow's report. You can jump out to next Thursday. You can look at the entire eight days, which I do every Monday to set my weekly lineups. So those are available all the time. But then 
every day the the um, analysts like brought like Brian write the um, you know, the accompanying article that kind of take the reports and the default ratings and add a little bit of color as to why the rating is the way it is or you know in some specific cases why we might disagree with the rating or something that the rating isn't capturing so those articles are usually up up in the morning between 9 and 10 a.m uh for further color on that day's action but again if you're setting your lineup or looking ahead you can always find the ratings for whatever time period within the next seven or eight days you need them HQ analyst Skip Snow handled Thursday's matchup ratings and picked out Zach Eflin at home versus Toronto. Toronto's, I mean, they're struggling a little bit, but they're no pushover. And, and this is two straight Tampa guys that got the uh, top ranking or near it. And how about this? Seven innings, one earned run, only eight base runners. Weirdly though, no strikeouts, which is, uh, which is quite something. How did uh, Skip Snow do with his other Two plus matchups ratings. Uh, Logan Gilbert of Seattle uh, at home versus Oakland, I think, was one of them. Yeah, it was Gilbert against Oakland, and uh, you know, it was probably if you're a Gilbert owner, a frustrating game to watch. He pitched really well, eight innings, I think, only three hits and two earned runs and eight strikeouts. But uh, you know, it was a game where the Mariners' offense. You know, it was the rare occasion where they did not get to the A's staff until late. So it was a good thing to. Gilbert lasted the full eight innings because I, I think it wasn't until the bottom of the eighth when the uh, Mariners actually came up with the third run to get the uh, get the three to two win and Paul Seawald managed to close it down. So if you were sweating out the Gilbert win, you had a you had a good long eight inning sweat there. But from a matchup rating perspective, you know there was really never much doubt that it was a uh, a quality outing for Gilbert. He was in control the whole way. Who do our analysts like tonight, Friday? Yeah, so tonight the. Uh, over in the American League, there we've got uh, you know actually three AL pitchers at the top of the rankings. It's uh, Chris Sale in Arizona, uh, George Kirby home for the Pirates, and Kevin Gossman uh, in Minnesota against the Twins uh, are the three top um, AL pitchers. Also, the top pitchers in both leagues tonight. Then you jump down a little bit in the table to look for. Um, other American leaguers, Reed Detmers is uh, rated a 1.2, which is still a pretty good outing uh, forecasted. Uh, he is home for the Marlins. Lance Lynn is in Detroit. I, you know, you don't need a calculator to tell you that's a good spot. Um, and then uh, you, you go down further from there. You get the Grayson Rodriguez uh, facing the Rangers, who are, you know, obviously a formidable offense. So, uh, you know, that's when the ratings start to get a little more tepid. Uh, but the, you know, the top of the table, Sale, Kirby, and Gossman for the AL tonight. Before we move on, I mentioned earlier Bryce Miller was one of those Brian Entrican picks, and he did really well. He's done well all year. I think his WHIP is down around zero point five, and his ERA is very low as well. And he's been terrific. But the knock that I'm seeing—you look at Twitter, you look at some of the naysayers—he hasn't really faced a, a lot of top quality offenses. I think he had one start against the Yankees. But other than that, it's been, you know, Oakland and Pittsburgh and teams like that. When you look at a player like this who gets off to this scorching start as a pitcher in the big leagues, is your reaction like mine to be suspicious of it or to embrace it and relish it? I, you know, the schedule is the schedule. So, you know, he can only face the teams that pop up on the schedule in front of him. And yeah, you know, two out of his five starts have been against the A's. So, you know, that's certainly a chance to get fat. He had another, uh, 
another one in, the, in Detroit where he threw seven shutout innings. So, you know, he has definitely padded his numbers. I'm uh, doing quick math here. That is those three starts, 19 innings of one run ball, no walks, and 19 strikeouts against Detroit and Oakland. Um, you know, but he was still, his other two starts were against quote-unquote real offenses he faced the Braves in Atlanta and he had a home game against the Astros and those were both PQS four outings all five of his starts actually have been PQS four outings so no we don't expect his ERA to stay at 115 or his whip at 0.51 uh you know we've got his expected ERA at about three and a half which is still you know good but not great so there's room for regression there but if we've learned anything, we've learned that he takes care of business against bad teams, and that's uh, that's still something worth knowing. It is because uh, all of us have horror stories of good pitchers who go into those situations, and for one reason or another, they don't get the win. And and really, that's what you want is a guy going deep into a game, holding down a bad offense, not relaxing or anything, and not turning out to be unlucky like Kevin Gosman has been this year so far with one terrible outing, I think, and a bunch of good ones, but he doesn't get wins because they don't score runs. So it's a, it's a multi-part thing that you have to look at, but uh, I really like Bryce Miller. I think he's going to be terrific, and uh, I wouldn't, I don't even think he's one of those guys I would look at his matchup to see for the week if I want to bench him or, or start him. I just, he's an auto start for me until he shows me that he's not. Uh, in our bullpen buyer's guide column, Doug Dennis looked at a bunch of bullpens with an eye on leverage and usage. This is something that Doug does really effectively a lot. And one of the relief situations he studied, Ray, was in Minnesota, where what looked like a solid closer role for right-hander Joan Duran hasn't quite turned out that way. Yeah, the start of the season, it sort of looked like Duran might take the job and run and hide with it. He got the early sa- early season save chances. He converted a bunch of them, and it looked like, you know, if some people, <coughs> myself included, had rostered a bunch of Jorge Lopez as a, sort of a 1B closer option there. It looked like you might have, you, you might have missed on that one. But uh, that has changed in the last few weeks, and the biggest reason for that is Duran himself. You know, his stuff is still elite and often unhittable, but he's getting himself in trouble without giving up hits because he's been walking a lot of batters. You know, he's when you strike out 31% uh, batters, 31% of the time, that's a, you know, that's a really good start, but um, he's walked 16. It, it, he, he's um, his K minus BB is only 16% because he's walking so many guys. So that, you know, sort of takes the edge off of the brilliant skills there. Now it hasn't wrecked his ERA, his ERA yet. Um, you know, and his expected ERA is still right around three because the strikeout rate is just so good. Uh, but as a result of the control problems, the lack of, you know, shutdown innings and maybe some issues with one of the things that happens when you walk guys is you go out and, you know, you're, you're, it, you're, it's taking you 20, 25 pitches to get through even a clean inning rather than 12 to 15. So, you know, for workload management or because they get a little skittish about Durant's walks, you know, they've been spreading out the saves a little bit over the last 30 days. Durant's got three and Lopez has two. And it's not like the Twins have been playing super well. So they're, um, you know, it's it's not a question of we have such a cornucopia of save opportunities. We have to spread them out. It's it's more about what's going on with Duran. Um, so, again, if you look at it in terms of clean outings, Lopez has 15 out of 20 
clean appearances and Duran is 11 and 16. So those are pretty comparable. And if, you know, if that's the kind of measurement that Baldelli is using, it's not necessarily surprising that he's spreading out the workload. And until Duran finds his lights out stuff again, you know, this might continue for a while. Yeah. And in case you're wondering, uh, 15 out of 20, 75%, of course, 11 of 16, about 69%. So they're both getting a lot of clean appearances, not as many as uh, really elite closers do. I'll say that, or even really elite relievers don't have that many non-clean appearances. But, uh, I think what Doug was saying was just treat it like a job share for now, because it is a job share for now. And don't get too married to either one of these guys, because really on a skills basis, this has to be Duran's job, but if for some reason he's not getting the job done, then that's how it goes. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Ray Murphy from Baseball HQ. And Ray, let's go over to the National League and start with our hitters. Our buyer's guide columnist, Stephen Nickrand, came out with his columns about early buy low candidates looking at hitters with sub-700 uh, OPSs, but skills that indicate better times are coming. And I saw a couple of intriguing names on the National League side of his list, starting with Pittsburgh third baseman, Kibrian Hayes. Yeah, Stephen called Hayes one of the premier batting average surge speculations around. And looking at the underlying metrics, you can see what Stephen is, what's drawing Stephen to that conclusion. Hayes is making a lot of contact at 84%. He has a very good swing strike rate, less than 6%. That's in the uh, top 20 of the league. So overall at a 92nd percentile whip, whiff rate. So, you know, really good control of the strike zone, not swinging at p- pitches outside the strike zone um, and making a lot of hard contact, the high a- a- average ex- exit velocity at 93 miles an hour. His max EV is 113. So he's got a good peak there too. Um, the thing that's going wrong actually is I take back what I said a minute ago is his chase rate. He's swinging at too many pitches out of the strike zone. The We mentioned above, he's making a ton of contact. So he's swinging at pitches out of the strike zone and hitting them. The problem is he, those are, those are very hard to hit hard. So, you know, that's where you're getting a lot of, you know, picture your weak dribblers and pop-ups and foul territory and, you know, that kind of stuff. That's really what's undoing Hayes. And that's really only the one thing he's got to fix to make all of the other things that he's doing well better reflect in his bottom line results. I was thinking exactly the same thing when I read the, what Steven said about this is you like to see a guy who doesn't, who doesn't swing and miss, but you don't like to see a guy who's doing that because his hand eye is good enough to get the bat to the ball somewhere, even if it's a foot outside or, or two inches above the dirt and he manages to poke it into play. But you know, the bat, the uh, BABIP on those kind of hit balls, I bet you is like 200 or 180 or something like that, because it's just, if you don't catch it somewhere near the middle and somewhere near the barrel of the bat, then you're just not going to be able to put enough of a charge onto it. The other National League hitter who caught my eye in this was Miami catcher Jacob Stallings. Uh, Stephen notes will be left for the scrap heap in many leagues, and for good reason. He's only hitting 118, got no power to speak of. Uh, 340 OPS, that might be the lowest OPS I've ever talked about here on Baseball HQ Radio. But Steven sees something in this profile that indicates the possibility that there could be a turnaround coming. What's what's Steven seeing? And I got to admit, I was snickering a little bit as I read this. Yes, regression is a powerful force. And yes, you're right, you're quite right, Patrick. Uh, when you have a 340 OPS, there's kind of really only one way it can go, right? It's, you know, it's hard yeah, to there imagine. there is that. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of hard to imagine it could take a turn for the worse, right? Um, and, and, you know, it's... It, it, 
Stephen puts it in a way that is, you know, a comment I've made here before, usually talking about pitchers and comparing their expected ERA to their ERA, but the same thing applies to batters. Like if you've got a 340 OPS, you've got to be both bad and unlucky, right? Your, your skills can't be that bad to support a 340 OPS because then you're not a major league hitter. You're, you're, you're you or me, right? Um, so what Steven is pointing out here is, yes, there are skill problems and also bad luck in play here. Um, his hit rate is only 21%, which is well below 27, 28%, which is his, his career mark that he should regress to. His home run per fly ball rate is normally around 8 or 9%. Um, and this is another case where his actual home run per fly ball rate is the same as yours, mine, and Jose Abreu's at zero. <laughs> <laughs> another member of our club. Um, but uh, you know, all of those things aside, in terms of batted ball quality, things are actually pretty good. He's got a 91 mile per hour average exit velocity. He's barreling 11% of the time, which is a healthy number. He's only swinging and missing 9% of the time. So his contact rate of 71% actually could be higher. So there's room for more contact here. There's room for more batting average. There's room for more power. All the arrows point upward, but they can only point upward from a 118 batting average. Steven's not exactly out on a limb here, I guess is my point. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, uh, I don't want to be a member of any club that has me in it, uh, to paraphrase Groucho Marx, insofar as the Zero Home Run Society. But uh, yeah, I don't think Mike Piazza is at any risk of, of losing his place at the pinnacle of offensive catchers to Jacob Sulling, that's for sure. And finally, uh, let's take a look at a really useful resource at Baseball HQ is the lineup outlook column by Greg Jewett where he finds hitters who have moved up or down in their team's batting orders, because that matters. And in this week's edition, he features Elias Diaz. What's the story with the Colorado catcher? Yeah, it's a story about the Colorado catcher and a little bit about the rest of the Colorado lineup, too, of course, that all of these lineup outlooks have you know multiple layers of interplay with them about the guys around him in a batting order and stuff, right? So Diaz started the year down toward the bottom of the order, but he's bashed his way up and... You know, I'm glad Greg wrote about this because I had noticed a couple of times that Eli that Diaz had shown up in the third or fourth spot in the lineup. But uh, you know, sometimes noticing it a couple of times isn't enough for it to get seared into my brain. So Greg picking up on it and writing about it really sort of underscored like, oh yeah, I did see that the other night, kind of thing. Um, and Diaz is up there on his merits in May. He's hitting 373 with an OPS of over a thousand, three home runs and 14 RBIs in his last 67 plate appearances. You know, that's 12th in the National League and OPS, tied for third at BA this month. Um, so, yeah, they moved him up to the third and fourth spot. And then, of course, the interplay aspect of that is one of the reasons the third or fourth spot was available is that CJ Crone is out and he had been hanging out in that spot. So, yeah, he's gotten up into the middle of the order and, you know, he's raking there for now in the last, uh, you know, he's got about 38 plate appearances between the third and fourth spots. He's got a handful of doubles, a handful of home runs. He's hitting, uh, you know, hit, hitting over 300 in both of those spots for very small samples. So, you know, the, the Rockies understandably are riding the hot hand here. What do we make of the Coors effect with any Colorado hitter, but in Diaz's case in particular? Yeah, it's a big factor always. And I was actually just having a conversation with Brent this week when we were making some of our lineup decisions. And this is a this is the time of year when I really do start thinking more about the Coors effect because it seems like I, I've never lived out in the Mountain West there, but it sort of seems like this is the time of year when 
the weather turns pretty suddenly from you never know when it's going to snow in Colorado to it's 80 degrees every day. Um, and you know, but this is the time of year when the, uh, you know, when the Coors effect and the weather gets warmer and the Coors effect really starts to bake in. Um, Diaz taking full effect of that. Um, he has 15 extra base hits on the year. 11 of them, including all of his home runs, have been at Coors, so he didn't need to wait for the warm weather to get hot out there. Uh, he is hitting 277 on the road, so credit to him for that. Um, but obviously the power has not followed on the road. And of course, the lineup dynamics, the uh, the overall counting stats all take a blow when you leave Coors Field because his uh, teammates are not getting on base in front of him and driving him in to the same degree they do at home. So you love the lineup spot. You love it at home. And if you're going to ride, you know, if you want to you know, take him on the road with you or, you know, keep deploying him on the road. It probably depends on what your, what your other options are. Let's go to the National League pitchers in our playing time tomorrow reports. Dan Marcus covers the five teams in the National League West. And this week he looks at a situation of interest to anyone who has National League players in their league pools. The Dodgers are once again, a powerhouse offensively. They are going to win a lot of games. That'll mean a lot of saves. But the question is who's actually at the front of the line at the back of the bullpen. Yeah, it's you know this question was unanswered th- sort of throughout the offseason and preseason waiting for uh, you know a big move that never came. And so far it's been Evan Phillips who's occupying that role. The team has 13 saves. He's got 7 of them, so that's more than half. Uh Brister Gratterall has 3 more and then uh there are 3 other guys who have one apiece. So Phillips did blow his first save earlier this week, but that's not enough to dislodge him from that role. Uh, overall, he's got seven saves and three holds, an ERA of two, a whip well under one. You know, the skills are great. K minus BB is 28. His expected ERA is 260. BPV of 174. That, that's all closer worthy. It sounds like it uh, getting up into vintage Eck territory, we call it, which is a BPV over 200 and extremely rare. So 174 is definitely getting the job done. But Dan said, Ray, that Phillips might be the victim of his own success. There was a Los Angeles Times story. Yeah, so the the speculation there or the point that was being made is, is a good one in that, you know, Phillips has been highly effective, but there's not a lot of other options in that bullpen. The rest of the bullpen has kind of taken on water. Uh, you know, despite the good work from Phillips that I highlighted above over the last month, the bullpen ERA is 462, which is the sixth worst in the league. And, you know, this is a group that was the strength of the team last year with a 287 ERA, but it's been really bleak. And as a result of that, you know, the temptation may be there for Dave Roberts to start using Phillips more as the fireman if he's the only guy that Roberts can trust in a big spot. As we all know, the big spot can come before the ninth inning. So Roberts might be tempted to use Phillips more in the seventh and eighth, get out of trouble, get through the middle part of the lineup and sort of take his chances later on in the ninth. Um, so that you know, that has happened a few times with Phillips where he's pitched in games where, you know, entered a game, you know, before the save situation, how often that happens probably depends on the rest of this bullpen and whether they can piece together a workable combination of guys in front of them. I'm reminded that one of those guys in front of them was supposed to be Daniel Hudson, um, who, you know, it was thought might've even been the main competition for the closer role. He was coming back from knee surgery in the preseason and the news sort of just keeps getting worse there. He was supposed to be delayed a couple of weeks at the start of the season, but 
we haven't seen him yet. And not only have we not seen him yet, but he's not even out on a rehab stint. And it sounds like we're talking about, you know, maybe the all-star break or something like him, now, something like that now. So Hudson's a ways away. So there's not a, you know, there, there's not, uh, you know, that internal reinforcement coming here, whether, whether, uh, Gratterall and company can establish themselves in front of Phillips. It's going to have to be the incumbent option to do that, at least for the next month or two. I was looking at the uh, game logs for Evan Phillips, and earlier this week, he actually entered a game in the fifth inning, uh, a game against Atlanta, and that's about as far from a safe situation as you're going to get. And it just indicates what you're saying that. Uh, it could be that Dave Roberts is going 100% towards, I need my best guy in the worst situation. And if that's the case, then I personally think it's the best way to manage a bullpen, but it certainly is not the best way to manage a closer for fantasy purposes. Yeah. And you know, the other aspect of it, when you think about the Dodgers, you know, when you, you, the calculus is a little bit different when you've got a really good offense like this, that, you know, you could bring in, you know, that's an extreme case where you bring them in and in the fifth inning, but if you bring them in that early, there's a, you know, and instead of just having to live with the fear that, oh my God, if I bring them in in the fifth inning, well, now I don't have them in the ninth for the same situation anyway, what am I going to do? Well, there's a decent chance the Dodgers offense is going to blow the game open by the ninth inning, so you don't have to worry about it. So, I mean, the, you know, there, there is some justification for Roberts to, you know, be more aggressive with him because, you know, he's got a be a better safety net than most of his fellow managers in terms of, well, if I get the three outs now, then my offense might just bail me out. And I mean, I, I may be, uh, you know, <laughs> down, down the dugout tunnel having a smoke in the ninth inning anyway, because I can relax. Okay. Yeah. It goes from being three all in the fifth to 14 to five in the in Yeah, the exactly. Yeah. The Dodgers excited lots of fantasy managers this week, Ray, by recalling right-hander Bobby Miller. They put right-hander Dustin May on the 60-day IL. He looks, I'm pretty sure, done for the year. Mark Gannon covering the story for Playing Time today. It seems like we've been talking about the Dodgers rotation all year here at Baseball HQ Radio, but what are the ramifications of this latest pair of moves? Yeah, we may have to start calling this a carousel instead of a rotation because it, it just keeps turning, right? Uh, so, you know, this time it's Bobby Miller jumping in, which is sort of one of the I don't want to say one of the last cards the Dodgers had to play here, but it was one of the big ones we were waiting for, right? You know, he was the uh, number two prospect in the Dodgers organization in our rankings entering the season, number 34, number 37, excuse me, on our top top 100 preseason list, you know, with a prospect rating of a 9C, which is a all-star stealing and a 50% chance of getting there. Of course, that getting there is not necessarily this year, but, you know, an exciting long-term prospect. And then if you look at what's around the rest of the rotation, <clears throat> you know, Gavin Stone had already jumped into the rotation earlier in the week. Michael Groves out on a rehab assignment. So they needed somebody to start Tuesday against the Braves. They called up Miller. He pitched well, five innings, one run, one walk, five Ks, got the win against a you know a good Braves team, obviously. Like you say, it looks like Mil like May is probably done for the year. Julio Urias is out with a hamstring injury and likely to miss at least one more start. Noah Syndergaard got a brief bump to the bullpen to sort of try to shake off his slow start to the season and maybe figure out what was wrong there, but he got pressed back into rotation duty pretty quickly. Uh, his ERA is 588, so tough to recommend him. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that leaves Miller, Stone, 
Ryan Pepiot's going to get some work as soon as he's ready to come back up, coming back from a preseason injury. So Dave Roberts said Stone and Miller are going to stick in the rotation. And we haven't even gotten to the annual Clayton Kershaw, my back hurts, I need a few weeks off, when we know that's coming. So it seems like there's opportunity for all of these kids, Miller, Stone, Pepiot, Grove. You know, if you know, I, I might say that all of those guys are going to get at least 10 starts from here through uh, the end of September. We talked earlier about Stephen Nickran's bylaw column on hitters, Ray. He also did one on starting pitchers, specifically for deeper leagues. And one name that jumped out at me, because all the excitement in Cincinnati seems to be about the offensive prospects they have lined up to get to the big leagues. But Steven says there's a pitcher who could be on that same bus maybe a time or two later. Yeah, it's interesting. The guy he's talking about is Andrew Abbott, who's a left-handed pitcher. Uh, one of the best pop-up prospects, you know, somebody who's, you know, greatly exceeding expectations, uh, you know, that we've seen this year. Um, but Steven made a great point that he is sort of an off-speed ar- artist, uh, getting a 22% swing strike rate, rate on his uh, off-speed pitches. And in double, you know, given that he was working in double A, that might be a case where he's a beneficiary of the enhanced grip baseball that they're testing in double a this year so maybe we got to take those numbers with a grain of salt and sure enough he got promoted to triple a and over three or four starts there um he still looked good 24 strikeouts to six walks in those 15 innings but the swing strike rate on the breaking stuff in particular is down to 13 percent, which is a little more pedestrian probably a little bit more of a correction than we would have expected just by going from double a to triple a so Remains to be seen how soon a call-up might happen. The Reds, like us, may be waiting to see how he deals with a more MLB-like ball in AAA, but certainly somebody to watch, um, especially in leagues where most of the top prospects were already owned and guys like this who pop up are highly valuable because uh, because the rest of the prospect pool is well-mined. And when you look at what Cincinnati's doing, I mean, that National League Central kind of looks like it's up for grabs. If Cincinnati was to get aggressive with their prospects and if the prospects come up and, and rake as expected, uh, and Carnassian Strand comes to mind and, uh, Ellie De La Cruz comes to mind. I mean, all of a sudden they could have a really good offense, but their pitching's still suspect. So I wonder if it's going to come down to guys like Abbott coming up and getting some quality innings in, and all of a sudden uh, Cincinnati would would be a contender in that week. National League Central, although St. Louis, I think, is still probably my favorite to take the title in uh, in that division. It's too bad the Reds traded away their ace in 2021. The rotation could have had Abbott and Castillo, which <laughs> would have been fun. The other two starters on Stephen Nickrand's National League list of whatever it is. The other two guys on Stephen Nickran's bylo column on pitchers are in Pittsburgh, Luis Ortiz and uh, Johan Oviedo. Let's start with what do you see with Luis Ortiz? Yeah, Ortiz caught a lot of uh, eyes late last season with an interesting run as I think primarily a September call-up in the Pittsburgh rotation. But then he didn't break camp with the team this year, which was maybe a little bit disappointing if you had stashed him at the end of last season. But um, his recent call-up reminds us how dominant – he was in that September call up, um, you know, he's got, got a 99 mile an hour fastball and, you know, he, uh, he was continuing to generate strikeouts in triple a this year. And, uh, you know, 
while trying to refine the control, the old 99 miles an hour and no idea where it's going, right? But, uh, you know, if he could be around the strike zone, he could be pretty darn effective. Uh, so I would imagine he's probably in this rotation uh, for good now unless he pitches, pitches himself out of it. So, um, you know, it's tough. You know, I'm still having trouble sort of rewiring myself to not cross off guys who pitch for pitch for the Pirates because in recent years that has been a wasteland of pitching. But uh, there are some rosterable pitchers in Pittsburgh this year. Ortiz is one, and you mentioned Oviedo's the other. Mitch Keller's one too, but uh, tell, tell us more about uh, Johan Oviedo. What does Steven seem to like about him? Yeah, he's a little bit more of a reclamation project or a pros- prospect that doesn't have Ortiz's ceiling. Uh, you know, his, his overall numbers for this year are actually – in the aggregate, pretty bad with a 5.59 ERA and a 162 WHIP, uh, but he's been beaten up by a 37% hit rate. Um, the underlying skills are pretty decent with a 13% swing strike rate, a 29% uh, caught and swing strike rate. Um, so his skills BPV of 76 is right around league average, which again, not to be excited about, but average is a long way from a 5.59 ERA, right? Um, the good things he's doing is he's keeping the batter, he's keeping the ball on the ground, getting more than 50% ground balls, um, and, you know, limiting barrels and hard hit balls against him. So all the more reason to think that he's been, uh, that 37% hit rate should correct in a hurry. Cause it's not one of those cases where is that we see periodically where his hit rate is through the ceiling because oh, he's throwing nothing but meatballs. That's not really the case. It's more the more of the uh, ground balls with eyes sneaking under shortstop's glove over and over and over again. So uh, not a uh, you know not n- not an option for the weak of heart. But Stephen points it out because it's a uh, classic case where the outward results are quite disconnected from the underlying skills. And we've talked about this before, Ray, but a lot depends on your team context. If you're in first or second place and you're trying to protect your position and move cautiously and not upset anything too badly, this, these are the kind of guys I think you kind of have to look beyond. But if you need wins, if you need strikeouts, if you can make a lot of hay with wins and strikeouts quickly, then I think maybe you kind of toss the coin and say, uh, I'm going to grab one or both of these guys and I'm going to ride it out on the off chance that they not kill my ratios while they're getting me some of the wins and strikeouts I need. And I think it's even more of a conversation this year because of the attrition starting pitching and, you know, how hard it is to find starting pitching. You know, it might be, like you say, the, 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 the attraction here is, pitching counting stats, it's the wins, it's the strikeouts. And Oviedo, in his case, is not a huge strikeout guy, but even if he's getting five innings a start, six innings a start, if he pitches well, that's better than the, you know, the, the reliever who's getting four innings a week, right? And uh, those those counting stats and the opportunity for the wins make a difference. And the, you know, we're, I, I think even in mixed leagues, we're digging deeper into the starting pitching pool because of the attrition, because of the injuries. And as a result of that, guys like Oviedo and Ortiz get closer to the, the, the threshold at which you have to consider them either for a spot start, or maybe uh, if you look at the schedule and there's a three or four start run that looks pretty good. You know, those kind of, th- those are the kind of places where I think it starts to get interesting. I think so too. And it's good advice. Keep an eye on these guys and it will depend a lot on what your needs are on your roster. Of course, Uh, Ray, thanks a million for helping us out again this week. And we'll talk to you again next week. Sounds great, PD. Thank you.
Ray Murphy is co-general manager, projections expert, writer, and analyst at BaseballHQ.com. Coming up, we have part two of our feature expert interview with Jeff Zimmerman. But let me first highlight another great item on the Baseball HQ site right now. In the Facts and Flukes Spotlight, analyst Matt Cederholm takes a hard look at Detroit's surprisingly successful left-handed starting pitcher Eduardo Rodriguez, he of the 206 ERA and 086 whip. But is it for real? The Facts and Flukes Spotlight is another great resource at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Jeff Zimmerman from Rotographs, the Launch Angle Podcast, and the Process Fantasy Baseball Manual. Jeff, welcome back to part two. Uh, Thanks for having me. We can keep going. Well, we were talking about the process earlier, and I want to talk more about it. But before we get back to the book and its thorough and really thoughtful analysis of in-season management, at Fangraphs recently, you had an article exploring the connections between strikeouts and whip. And I got to tell you, when I first read the headline, I thought, more strikeouts, better whip. And I also know that when Jeff Zimmerman gets the urge to test out something that we all take for granted, it's a good idea to see what you find out. So what did you find out? The one thing I found was I just figured strikeouts were just unrelated to whip. Like they were kind of their own, like it didn't matter, like walk rate what matters and hits. But the deal with strikeouts, since it's on an inning basis, that's kind of the key. It's not BABIP-driven. Um, it's on that inning. If you get the strikeout, there's no chance for a hit that inning or a chance for a walk for that one out, for that at bat. And it just um, limits the chances yeah, for those hits that inning. And so as you get a higher strikeout rate, if someone sees their strikeout rate increase, their whip will go down. And it was just something I hadn't put together. And that strikeouts were, like I said, I've been playing for a while. It was, it's just, I don't know why I, I couldn't put it together between now, but it's just something like going forward. It's like, I think anytime I've seen someone's strikeouts go up, like, oh, their whip will probably regress to what it was before because, you know, they weren't related. So I kind of put in a table of like, Oh, if a guy has this much strikeouts and this much walks, this is what their whip should be. And there's some correlation. I mean, you still have hits involved, but it's, um, yeah, it's like you kind of learn something every year. And this was one thing I found out this year. I'm curious about a couple of individual players that you mentioned on Twitter. First, you were among the first I saw tweeting about the May collapse of April's top fantasy hitter, Jorge Mateo of Baltimore, which has really been something dramatic, I guess is one way you could put it, but disastrous might also fit the bill. How do you explain this really collapse by Jorge Mateo? To begin with, I don't know if he's a good baseball player. Um, it just doesn't walk, and there's a range of outcomes on his possibilities. And for... For years, he was on, I know he was on Oakland, and he went to, I think, the Padres and just couldn't latch on to those teams. And he goes to the Orioles. They really didn't have another anyone else at the time they wanted to bring up. And he was able to play every day and was able to hit the ball hard and actually had a little bit of luck, I think. And 
worked himself into a job and he's one of those ones like, oh, the playing time increased. He steals a bunch of bases. He becomes greatly valuable. And he started the season hitting the same way. So there was a possibility that he had a talent change. But I think like when he was maybe on the high side, it's way down on the low side. I mean, I think his OPS is like 400 or something right now. It's just almost – he can't be started almost at this point just because he's not providing anything else. So he's one that – in his April stats may be hiding it, but he's one that – I don't know if the team's going to be able to keep playing him. Like that's going to be more of an issue. Is like maybe he'd turn it around if they gave him the chance, but I don't know how much more they're going to give him a chance. But I think Ramon Urias is about ready to come off the IL and – Pretty much, it might be time for Mateo to be heading to the bench when it when it happens. Baltimore also has a, a lot of top shelf infield prospects, and so lots of fantasy analysts are saying the Orioles should or will bench Mateo or even trade him or cut him to call up one of those great infield prospects. And usually, the name we hear is Jordan Westberg, who's absolutely killing it in AAA. But your idea on Twitter was that Baltimore should trade one of their infield prospects. What's your thinking there? Well, my deal was, well, they have a bunch of them and they have other needs on the team. And I kind of got, it's from the Baltimore community. I, I really didn't have anything against them trading one. It was, they were also wanting a little bit more starting pitching at the time too. And I think that I could totally see that. Like, I think their bullpen's pretty locked down right now. I'm sure they could add one more arm just in case someone gets hurt. But um, them being able to add some starting pitching wouldn't surprise me they go after the right team and just try to get some guys that um, will help them out for some of the um, middle infield talent. So it's one of just one of those instances where some teams have too much of something. Um, I mean, the Cardinals right now probably have too many outfielders. I mean, they just can't play everyone. They're kind of weird when they trade stuff off that not the best. It's always tough to work trades out. Like you never see what's going to happen with them or they're not very obvious, but I think um I think it's something that Baltimore has, and I wouldn't be surprised if the team's looking into it if they're still competitive near the trade deadline. Speaking of guys needing to turn things around, you said on Twitter that Trey Turner's current talent level has the feeling of peak Whit Merrifield, you said. What makes you say that Trey Turner's stock has fallen that far, and how likely do you think he is to rebound, if at all? I don't know if the rebound's happening. Just kind of looking at stuff, it's just a slow degrading so it's one of those deals where some guys just age faster. I mean, he's been in the league since he was like 22 and has taken off. I mean, took off then. His next season, 23, is when he really took a step forward. But he's had some injuries and he's at 30. So things are kind of heading down. It's not like we just don't know what those curves are always like. It kind of looks like he had hit the peak and it's heading down and we just don't know how fast it's going to be. I think Trey Turner is still going to be useful. And like, like I said, with Pete Mer uh, Whit Merrifield, we didn't draft him first overall. We weren't draft him in the first round. He's usually second, third, fourth round guy that we were adding when he was at his peak. Um, he was providing some stats. It wasn't great. He had, wasn't really kind of like a league average hitter. Um, right now, some uh, Turner's projections kind of have him down into like a, 750 to 800 OPS. It's really not like elite talent you want from those um, first round picks. So I just, it'll be interesting to see if he stays up, up in the top picks next year. 
or if it's yeah, like I said, just a slowly kind of decline, kind of what we might have seen, we've been seeing with Mookie Betts, where it's like, oh, he wasn't the steals aren't there. There's just not as much talent. He's still a really good player, but it's just not one of those elite five category contributors. Yeah, after you wrote that on Twitter, I went and just took a quick glance at Fangraphs and at Baseball HQ to see what's the deal and the OPS 900, 800, 700 basically in the last three years. And it seems like a precipitous fall to me, but again, and the guy's only 29. That's a, that's the part that makes me wonder if this is some kind of injury maybe, or some, there's some, something anomalous about the track record here. But, uh, at age 29, 30, that's when we expect to see stolen bases start to fall off. So I'm not sure what to think of Trey Turner. I know he's going to be in my books next year, barring some kind of huge rebound this year. I think in draft next year, he's going to be kind of in the Bo Bichette class for me, a guy who we always think of as generating a lot of stolen bases, but doesn't actually generate a lot of stolen bases and has some holes and that kind of thing going on. I, I think Bo Bichette's a better hitter than Trey Turner at the moment, but not uh, not an all-around guy like we were expecting. But a guy who should be an all-around guy is Bobby Wood Jr. in Kansas City, but he's become a Twitter drum that people really like to bang on. I don't know what's wrong with seven home runs and 13 bags a third of the way through the season. That's like 2040, basically. Batting average is a problem, but you're in Royals country down there in Kansas. Uh, what's your take on Bobby Witt Jr.? I think people should have expected this. The home runs and stolen bases are in line with what you kind of expected. I think everyone was hoping for like around 2020, and we're probably, you're probably going to get more stolen bases than that. I think it's more steals and home runs. I think people were hoping for him to be even, but I think that that's fine. Um, you knew the runs and RBIs weren't going to be there. There's some players, and they're sort of getting warming up a little bit in Kansas City, but that's a horrible lineup. Horrible. So he's hitting toward the top of it, so he's not going to get many RBIs. Like He's at 19 right now. If he gets over 60, I think you'll be happy with it at the end of the season. You're not, I mean, I think that's kind of expected at the top of that lineup. There's just no one getting on at the end of it. Um, the batting average – He's having the same kind of walk, kind of contact thing. I think it's probably just BABIP-driven a little bit. That'll come up. I don't know if he's going to be any kind of elite one, but I think a 250 batting average, 260 is what you should kind of expect out of him. I think that that might be the complaint, but everything else is – there should be no surprise otherwise with his stats. Like I said, I, the only thing that I'm – I thought the home runs and stolen bases would be a little bit more balanced, but I don't think you're going to complain the way it is right now. Yeah. And he's still young. You know, I don't, I don't know that he's actually filled out enough. I think in the next three or four years, I don't think 30, 40 is out of the question at all. And in fact, that would be, I think that would be roughly where I'd set my expectations. And if that comes with a 260 batting average in this day and age, I'll take that too. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Jeff Zimmerman from Fangraphs, Rotographs, the Launch Angle Podcast and the Baseball Manual, The Process Jeff, we were talking about the process earlier and specifically about in-season roster management, and we got as far as the importance of identifying free agents who can help us improve our rosters. And in the subsection of that topic, you said the rest of season projections are always going to be the best predictor of talent, but there's possibly an extreme payout to be had by identifying the exceptions to the rules earlier than one's opponents. So what are the rules and what are the exceptions that could indicate that opportunity? Um, on the hitters, again, I kind of stated this before. It's really tough to see where that breakout's going to be. 
Um, I think with the stat cast stuff, I think you can notice some like max exit velocity, um, 95th percentile, like they're just hitting the ball harder. Um, you can also see better plate discipline. Um, kind of know when that stabilizes, but if someone has cut their strikeout rate, weight, rate in half, that that's probably a good sign that like, you know, there's a talent here that that's why they're batting average. I try to stay away from any pitcher or hitter that has BABIP driven changes in their profile. Like if it's all BABIP driven, it's just tough to know where that's going to end up, but both of them. Yeah. And another thing is you can just look at that strikeout and walk rate, even with pitchers is see where, if that's changed, if there's any major changes there, but also, like you said, you want to try to like the exceptions to the rules. We kind of talked about also earlier is like, has the pitcher added a pitch? Have they taken one away? Have they added velocity? Has something else changed in their profile that makes them better? And I don't know how many guys it's like, oh, this guy had a couple of good starts. I'll go and look and see like, okay, nothing's really changed. But you have to kind of keep doing that if you want to figure out who's taking a step forward. One thing you can do is try to watch and listen to and read about as much as you can baseball. It's just be like, okay, here's someone, whether than, you know, what's his post game say like, Oh, I was working on this pitch. It did great or something like that. Or during the game, they may mention it. So it's something watching the games with two kids in high school I and all their activities. Hopefully I can catch some more now, but it's one of those deals I don't get enough of, but I, a lot of times at the events I'm reading, trying to catch up on any notes I can. I used to be in that uh, position as well with kids and activities and stuff. And one solution I found was uh, MLB.com, the, uh, what they call MLB.tv, I think has a radio deal you can uh, sign up for. And if you get enough data on your phone, then you can listen to the games while you're doing whatever it is that you're doing. And I often find that the radio broadcasters are sometimes real useful in telling you what's going on with the rosters and giving you some hints in that way. And you say that in the book that assessing players by their change in roster levels is a really good way to understand the value perception that exists in your league. And you have a really great hack to get that intel quickly enough to act on it. What's your hack for finding out roster levels in your leagues? To kind of see where the demand's going, and it's something I use all the time, is Look at leagues that have, if you're in a weekly league, that have daily moves. And those are usually the players that are getting the high demand right then. The one I like best is CBS. They're, I've talked to the people there, and their formula is based off the last seven days. So that's their roster percentage change over the last seven days. And um, so it'll sort of change during the week. But if some guy comes out Monday throws great. You can see where his demand will be. And if it could be huge and everyone else is going to be adding him, or if it just kind of stays down and there's not, no one else is kind of going after him, you might be able to bid a little bit less. Um, Yahoo. The one thing with them is if you're on like a Sunday, you can look at their changes and um, it's only for the last 24 hours. So the deal with that is, is, while CBS might be slow to moving, theirs are moving fast. And you can just take a quick look like, oh, why is this guy going up? A lot of times it might be like, actually it is a lot of times the streaming starters, like they're just trying to get their one thing, one guy for that um, day. But um, anyone that's changed on like a Sunday, if you're not able to 
read the news or stay away, you can kind of see if there's just some demand there. Um, the third source is Fantrax. They kind of operate on a three-day, they've operated on a three-day basis and it's weighted off of that. So it's, it's, I don't, it's a fine one to use. It's just, um, you just have to kind of remember that you missed moves from earlier in the week, if that's what you're kind of looking for. But no, um, going to those um, sources, I just find is like, it, it makes sure I don't miss anyone. Um, a lot of people have the fab articles and then as someone else that writes one, um, it's just really hard to get, um, add everyone in and also to add everyone in for your league size. Like if you're in a 10 team mixed league, you have a lot of the options that it's just like a lot of players are available that compared to someone in like a 10 team NL only where, you know, it's like the options are cut in half and there's just barely anyone out there. Um, like right now, Bobby Miller from the Dodgers at CBS is the most added player. It's no surprise after his game. Jake Berger, since he's starting to play more, he's becoming the most added. So um, kind of surprised Jorge Soler wasn't already rostered as much, but it's kind of like 60%. He must be getting into all the leagues right now. His has moved up a lot. A lot of Rockies right now since they're home for the week. But it's just one of those deals. Like if you notice like all the Rockies are going, that oh, yeah, you probably can notice that there's probably a bunch of games in Colorado upcoming. The CBS and Yahoo leagues, is that information just public? You can go in there and find out or do you both have? Of, as of right now, both of them are. Um, some CBS wasn't for a bit. Like you had to have a league. But um, as of right now, I have a link that you can go in and look at it. The one thing that's a little bit harder with them with the league is if it's not on like their leaderboard, they don't have the information of how they've moved. So it has to be like one of the top movers. Um, okay. But most of the time that goes down to like 2% ch percentage cent chance, you know, change. And if you really want to nitpick it, you can go to each of the um, positions and see a lot of them are just like, oh, with catchers, I noticed like maybe there's like 10 of them that have moved up. So it's just not as many. You can kind of get those positions down that way and figure out who, where the demand might be for the week. Jeff, the flip side of knowing which players to add is knowing which players to drop, especially since most of our leagues have limits on how many players you can have on some form of reserve or bench off in the IL as well. And a big part of that issue for many fantasy managers is what's called endowment bias. And that's the tendency to overvalue the bird you have in your hand relative to the potentially better bird that's out there in the free agent bush. Uh, you have a couple of tips for fantasy managers to get their heads straight before making these often critical decisions about who to add, who to drop. I think the best one, and some people don't have multiple leagues, is would you, like, I just remember one time like I was holding a player and then I go to another league and I'm like, why would I add them? I'm like, wait, I'm holding them in one of my other leagues and I'm not going to pick them up in the other leagues. Like, I just need to move on from that player. And I think that that's one of the biggest keys is when you have those multiple leagues, you can kind of see that when you just have one league and you're focused on it, sometimes you don't, um, you just don't see that that player is just not valuable or anyone's going to have one wanting to pick them up. Um, the other one, and 
some people just won't do it, but it's like if you aren't mad about a player drop or at some point during the season, you're not doing enough. You need to be making more moves. If you haven't messed one up and, you know, some players taken off and so forth, like you're not grinding to try to get better players. You're just trying not to make a bad move and you have to try to make a good move. Like you can't be keep making bad moves. And so that's a deal. But I think it's even if you're making, like I said, one more good move than bad, you're improving your team. And um, that's one other thing we've looked at in the book is just like the teams that win the higher up, like they're just making more moves. Like they're looking to try to get themselves better each and every week on a little bit basis. And um, take, putting forth that's just that little bit of effort can make a big difference. So no, the number of moves and like I said, just not being like, oh, I'm going to make two moves and so forth. I think sometimes on some of my teams this week, I had seven ads and drops, different categories. Like I, my team's not good. I need to keep grinding up and um, that's just what happens. But yeah, the big ones are just like, would you really add them? And it's tough to, like I said, know with like one league, but when you have multiple leagues, it sometimes sticks out and then just not being afraid to make a bad move. It happens. It, it, it's the only way to win. Something I've always found handy when I'm reviewing the free agent list is just how, what percentage of ownership does this player have and what percentage of, of ownership uh, does this, has this player as far as being started in the leagues that you're playing in on the platform you're playing in. And a lot of them have that information available. And if you're doggedly hanging on to somebody who's only being held by 24% of the leagues and only being started in 12, first of all, you're probably making a bad decision. And second of all, even if you decide to drop him, chances are you'll be able to get him back if things change, because he's, he's just not that widely owned that anybody's going to leap forward and, and grab him up right after you drop him and make you feel worse about your situation. Uh, what about injuries, Jeff? Uh, how do we need to understand player injuries, respond to player injuries when we're deciding about ads and especially about drops? Oh, man. This is where league rules come into play so much. If you're in a league with like the un unlimited IL, that just makes a huge difference. And like you just put them there and deal with them when they come back. Sometimes that's a tough choice then, but you're like, um, like I said, just like I said, you have to deal with it then. With the other ones, it really comes down to league depth. I play in both 12 team and 15 team leagues in the NFBC where they don't have any IL. And every year I look at the 12 team waiver wire. It's not there yet, but it's getting there where it's just IELT guys are the top rostered ones. And it's like, you just have to, in some places to keep the good players, you just have to kind of cut some and move on. But in like 15, some of those same guys just aren't available. So in those 15s, you probably might have to hold on to them a little bit longer, hoping that there's just no other players that become available in the pool of their talent and you're not falling behind. So it really comes down to balance in the leagues. One change that I've noticed, and it's, I'm kind of even been a little bit behind with it right now is 
trying to get those guys and having a spot on my roster two weeks early when they're coming off the IL and just being able to hold them on my team until then, just, you know, suck up those first couple weeks and be able to do that. And um, it just makes a huge difference. Um, once they come back, I mean, that's if you can be able to roster them, which sometimes you don't have that chance, but it's, Maybe it's one of those instances where you drop them. Instead of holding them for two months, you just hold them for two weeks and just kind of plan on going at that route. Yeah, I, I lost O'Neill Cruz before the season started in one of my leagues. And I actually ended up hanging on to him for quite a while because there was, at the time, a little bit of uncertainty about how long he was going to be out. And eventually it turned out he's going to be out till August or something like that. And I just, just had to throw him aside and try to pick up. But uh, how do you build in the expected duration of the injury? And then you have to calibrate that, as you said, with what are you going to fill the slot with? And sometimes what you have to fill the slot with is, I mean, any home run is better than zero home runs. I get that. But uh, sometimes it comes with a 210 batting average and all of a sudden playing a guy is not as valuable as you might think just the, because the uh, the blow to your batting average ratio offsets the minimal gain you get in some of the counting stats. Yeah. I'm probably more cutthroat than most people, just to say that. The one thing I found this year it's, it even started last year, was if there's a starter I think I can stream through, I might cut the hurt player um, a little bit more early. The other thing is, like, look where they are talent-wise and kind of see what's showing up. Um, I was even noticing in the NFBC main event, um, in one of my leagues, Jake McCarthy was at the top, like – uh, if you, if someone hasn't been there, like when you go to pick up players, the player's name is there and then their roster ship rate if they're available in your league and all the other leagues. So it's like Jake McCarthy and it's at like 66%. And I was like, he's being held in like almost two thirds of the leagues and he, there's no chance he could come up this year. I mean, there's, you don't even know if he's going to be able to come up and how productive he's going to be. He was horrible before he was um, set down. And I was like, what are these kind of managers hoping for? But it's the same way with like a hitter. It's like, are you, um, who did I see the other day? It was highly rostered and was hurt. And I was like, man, this guy's going to be for, take a while to come back. We don't even know if he's going to be good. I think the only ones you can really hold are just like elite talents. And probably at this point in the season, probably you're like eighth rounder, better players, maybe even less than that. Um, but I think a lot of times you just have to kind of move on. I think like Max Fried is probably like on the edge, but like Kyle Wright, he, he almost had to left to let him go. You can probably create something better from players on the wire than him. Um, I've seen people drop Brandon Woodruff. I kept him in one place, but I can understand why. Carlos Rodon, I've seen pop up a few times that people have kind of had to. I want to make a hard decision on that. Nick Lodolo, I let him go everywhere. He wasn't, I don't know if he was 100% right, but. Um, he was one that all the news just wasn't good. So I was just like, okay, I'm, I'm going to have to move on from this. So it's, it's such a tough one. And again, it might be a case where just keeping logs on what you like, or, you know, you felt like it was too early, too late and so forth and um, be able to look back at them. But it's one of those questions. that's just 
almost impossible to answer. And a lot of it also depends on your team's context. If, if O'Neill Cruz is your only injured player, then you have a little bit more latitude in, in hanging on to him. But if you've got four other injured players, all of whom are coming back sooner than O'Neill Cruz on your seven person uh, reserve in an NFBC format, then all of a sudden that changes the calculus because, you know, you don't want to be blowing out six out of your seven uh, roster reserve spots on injured guys. Oh yeah. I mean, that's, it really yeah, it comes down to your bench spots and who's available and, and stuff like that too. Like in those only leagues, sometimes it's like, fine, I'm keeping him. There's just nothing else out there. Like, yeah, I, there's, I played in this one league and it was, I actually liked it as an only, it was four bench spots. That was it. Normal format, but just four, including the IL. So there was a lot of players on the wire, but you had to kind of make those tough cuts. Do you keep this hurt guy? But you would just see a lot of players kind of get ground through. And it was like one of the more active waiver wires in an only league, just because those four bench spots were just made for a lot of interesting decisions. I played it. My very first league was a, a 12 team AL only, and it pretty much adhered to the original rules of rotisserie baseball that came out in the book in the eighties, whenever that was. And one of the characteristics of the league was it had no reserve list. We had an IL and you could keep guys on the IL indefinitely and it was a keeper league, but there was no reserve list where you could just keep a guy on your bench for no reason, other reason than you wanted to have him. And we had a separate list for, for prospects. So there was a real vivid, uh, offshoot of the league where we were all very interested in prospects, but they didn't take up any roster spots. So what we had was our 23 man roster and injured guys. And then separately we did prospects and there was no reserve. So we always had a little bit more variability and flexibility in our, in our waiver wire moves because we weren't soaking up 50 guys on the reserve. Yeah. I, it's probably my one complaint with my two big industry leagues is the unlimited IL. And even in our 15 teamer, I'm in like you think there'd be some options and it just dries up with so many guys on the IL. There's just no kind of movement in and out. I remember one year I had 10, 12 guys in the IL and it was just like, I mean, it was horrible for me, but those guys just kind of weren't in the pool and not, um, you didn't have to try to make that guess when they come back. Um, it's just different rules and people don't like to lose their IL players, but I think at some point maybe there has to be a, like a limit to kind of just, keep some um, options going for the league. Yeah, I think that's going to be a big debate. It already is in a couple of circles where I kind of follow along is what are you going to do to keep only leagues viable? Because it it's so frustrating to draft what you think is a good team, lose a couple of guys to injury, a couple of underperformers, and there's nothing you can do about it. It's like, it's like you draft your team and then you just basically start tossing coins until the end of the year. And I think that you know, team, leagues are going to have to start thinking about roster size, roster distribution, and those kind of things. We talked earlier, Jeff, about knowing the value of potentially acquirable players in the context of their specific value to your team. And I do this by using projected standings. At least that's part of my toolbox. Where do you stand on using projected standings to make roster decisions? I have done the work and been able to do that and they have just fallen apart um 
The one reason I find that they don't work is, for me especially, is I'm such a heavy grinder, changing out like three to seven spots every week, is those guys that I have projected in there for like that week, like a... Um, I've thrown in Gavin Sheets. He has a seven-game week against all righties. He looks really good. His season-long stats are just horrible because he's not going to start all the time. Or if you have some of those guys from San Francisco and all righty week and you're throwing them in, the season-long numbers aren't the same. So it's one of those deals where I just don't – the numbers don't line up for me. And so it's – I probably should be like at the beginning of the year, kind of know what they are, but almost every week I'm my weekly stats are projected to be better than my season long, but my season long are bad because I'm kind of grinding in these guys that are two week starters, or this is like this way. So it's one of those, I think it w works good with like an NL only or a really stable lineup, but anyone that's grinding, I found that just doesn't work for me. You also had an idea in the book, The Process, that I use all the time as a quick alternative to a full projected standings, and that is basically I look at the individual categories and just eyeball it and say, here's where I can gain, here's where I can lose, and kind of keep track of it that way. How does that work for you? That's actually one of the big ones, and I kind of um, said, like, oh, how much movement is there? And that's where I just look at like the historical ones is kind of see like, oh, this guy has been able to make up this much ground. Um, you kind of improve your players. But um, I do the eyeball one. Um, I also do it like last year I had a couple teams in like the overall in like the NFBC. And um, I was able to kind of – that was one um, you can use – they have like individual – standings and you can see where you are in those standings um it helps if you can like bring them into excel and it really shows it out well but it's like you may be winning like home runs in your league and how things are working out but you could be at like the 60th percentile in the overall and you're like oh i need to kick that up so you probably need to be in closer to 80 to win or to start placing so that's one of those instances where depending on what you're at you might want to see where you think you can move up and so forth and how much, how much you can gain. But um, I know right now in labor, I'm like 10, it's, it's 12, 12 runs would move me up like eight, six spots. Yeah. Six spots. So that's when I'm like trying to add wherever I can, you know, it's like, Oh, that's the one I need to attack. It's really tough to attack in labor, but it's like, if I ever get the chance, that's why I kind of went after McLean was like, Oh, hopefully he's leading off and I can start getting some runs again. And especially in leagues where you can trade, this is a, where you can start. I think it's too early to use those sort of eyeball decisions and say, Oh, I'm, you know, I'm five wins away from picking up seven points in the category. Yeah. That's where you are right now, but you do have to look a little bit farther ahead before you 
you know, throw in something. You know, I've, I've got a 12 run lead so I can trade a runs guy for a starting pitcher. Yeah. That 12 run lead is not as solid as you think. If it was 35 runs that you were leading by, then I could see maybe making that kind of decision. But you have to keep in mind that it's still a lot of baseball to be played before you can start actioning those uh, various kinds of things that you notice. One year in um, Tout Wars, Zach Steinhorn and I were in, in that boat. Like we needed to change runs in RBIs. Like he was leading one, I was leading the other. Like let's work this out. We make the trade and within a week, all the lineup spots became the same. And all I was getting was RBIs and he was like, or whatever we were after it changed. And we had just traded the players back <laughs> because it was just <laughs> like, like we have to, you know, we didn't get what we wanted out of the trade and now they changed lineup spots and you know, the RBI guys became run guys and run guys became RBI guys. And right back like, where you started. Just, yeah. We're back <laughs> where we started. Like, all right. Everyone's like, what happened there? And it was like, it was kind of obvious what happened and you, know, you could tell what we were doing was trying to balance that, but it was like, all right, let's go back to where we were. Swap back. A, oh, it was so kind of embarrassing, but it was just also like, well, we're just trying to do better, you yeah. know, trying to win. And Makes a good story. Yeah. Makes a good fantasy baseball story. So far, as I said, Jeff, I tend to just kind of eyeball those gaps and take an educated guess at how much rising or falling potential I have for the balance of the season. Is there any way I could make that process more analytical, more disciplined? You can, um, there's some software packages that could probably show you, you know, what you would have to do or what you would have to add. Um, that's probably where like the end of season stuff is a little bit better. Like, Oh, you could make the trade and put this guy in there and it can, that might be probably one of the good ways with, with that type of, um, software. It's like, even just assuming what your team was and you trade out this player for this one and you kind of move like you added trade off a hitter and you bring in a good pitcher and what you predict for his stats, how do you add that into what you were already getting? You could probably do something like that. Um, I just find it's better just to go look at lineups and spend time that way. Um, I usually will start nitpicking stuff the last like two months of the season and really see like, oh, I've got to move up in ERA or I've got to move up in whip or this way and maybe start making some moves then. But right now I'm just trying to accumulate talent and try to win the week. If you can keep winning the weeks, you can move up in standings and win the overall, you know, season. So just go out there and you don't want to lose like your talent for the whole season, but I'm just trying to put out the best seven guys each week or, you know, or the best 23 guys each week. And, um, go that route. And some weeks I'm not got the best, but if you don't try to put it out that way, there's no way to move up. Yeah. I think that's a really good way to approach it. I, when I was single and I had all kinds of time on my hands, I used to get three or four sets of projected player projections. And then I'd kind of amass them the way that Ariel Cohen does with his like averaging thing, not nearly as in as much detail. I just averaged the four of them and, and came up with a set of projections for each player. And then I basically assigned all those projections to all the rosters in the league I was playing in. And it get, you can get pretty obsessed with that. And I realized after a year or two of doing this, that 
anything I did in the first, like anything before the all-star break for sure was just a waste of time because like you said, you're swinging around in the categories so much that you could get into a situation like you and Zach, where you'd make a trade to, to swip, to flip the categories and they flip right back on you just because of what happens in the real world. I think you don't, I don't think you have a full and usable understanding of it until it's sort of getting towards the stretch and you can take a really much more accurate look at what you think you need and how you can make, uh, make up some ground. And one fault too, I know someone that's obsessed with the rest of season ones. And the deal is, is that they, ha- they assume everyone else's roster stays stagnant. And I know that that was the fault that they were doing. Like they had found out is everyone else's rosters aren't staying stagnant. And it was kind of even the case where I was saying, you're not able to maximize your team for that week. Like you can't look at the rest of the season because you're got these guys in and are really good for this week is they're comparing their team to what your week is. And they're like, Oh, he's not very good for the rest of the season. I'll be able to beat him and make him up. It's like, no, he's trying to win that week and he'll do it again. Um, but yeah, the person I know that does that constantly is like always ending up like second to fourth. And they're like, Oh, their projections make them think that they're going to win all the time, but they're just comparing them to teams that are so turning and changing that you have to kind of almost be doing that same thing, trying to win the week to stay up with them. If you just keep running the same stagnant lineup out, you know, the guys that you think the other team is going to be doing that same stagnant lineup, you're just going to fall behind. Yeah, that's true. And you have to start thinking about what might this other team do? Because while you're thinking about moving in the, uh, in the categories with your trade, chances are, if you're in a decent league with active players, that they're doing the same thing. And you, you can't just assume that you are the only one who's making moves. That's for sure. Now you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Jeff Zimmerman from Fangraphs, Rotographs, the Launch Angle Podcast, and the Fantasy Baseball Manual, The Process. And Jeff, uh, I always like to wrap up these discussions by looking at some boons and banes. These last few weeks, we've been looking at the coming weekend's fab runs. I wouldn't mind continuing that. We'll start with your boons. These are players who look like good value for this weekend. Who's a batter who could be a fab boon? The one guy I like, he's, I still think he's way under rostered. I'd already brought him up with Lane Thomas. He's leading off. He's playing every day. He's providing home run steals and average. I don't know what more people want. Maybe his batting average is a little bit high, but everything else is in line. So um, there's no reason not to be rostering him right now. Um, I, I like everything about it. Is there a bias against guys who are on teams like this? I think so. And he wasn't like leading off and he wasn't doing great for a while, but it's been that way for like three weeks. I think people are really in tune to like what's happening to begin with. And then just kind of be like, Oh, that's still happening that way. And with um, Lane Thomas, it's just like, you kind of have to notice this. And um, that's where like once a week, every two weeks, just go look at the lineups and see what's happening. And you'll be like, Oh, this is obvious. Like I missed this. In a way it's kind of like the, uh, Jorge Mateo thing in reverse, people glance at his line. He's still hitting 262. You know, he's got all these reasonably decent looking stats, but if you look at the last three weeks, he's been the worst player in baseball. You know, he go he went from literally from being the best, most valuable player in fantasy baseball to almost literally the worst player in fantasy baseball. And you have to be, if not married to at least aware of what's going on lately. 
And what have you done for me lately is uh, sometimes used to, to make fun of people. But I think in fantasy baseball, it's at least worth thinking about. Who's a pitcher who could be a boon this weekend when we go into our free agent runs? I had written down James Paxton. I just looked at his roster percentage and it's pretty high. So I think he's one that if he's still available, I remember writing him up this weekend that he was, but it seems like since then it, he's really been pushed up. A guy I like, and I don't know what his role is going to end up being, and it's been bouncing around, is Matt Strom. He's pitching great. He's throwing a lot of innings. They're putting him in high leverage spots. This week, people may be frustrated with him because I think he's an opener. I don't know how many innings he's going to go, so he's not going to be able to get the win. But over like the last few weeks, he's gotten a save. He's gotten a couple wins out of the bullpen. He was starting good. I think in any kind of – I don't know if he's – he might even be 12-team viable, but definitely in like 15s when you don't like other starters, he seems to just be getting enough workload and in high leverage spots that he's worth rostering. Over to our Baines. These are players you think are going to be overbid this weekend. Who's a batter who could be a fab Bane? I might be a week behind. Like I think people might have caught on is um, Mark Vientos out of the Mets. I think he's a great talent. I think he was hitting great in the minors. Everything looks good. He's just not playing. And he's in most places, he's only DH qualified because that's what he hit last year when he came up for a little bit and didn't get enough playing position. High prospect pedigree and everything. But like I said, I don't think he's um, rosterable at all right now. And that's, it's really sad. Like he's really just can't have a part-time utility only bat. Yeah, a lot of people are pretty angry with the way Buck Walters managing some of the young guys that he has on that team in favor of some of the older, frankly, less skilled players that he's uh, continuing to run out there. And finally, Jeff, who's a Bane pitcher for this weekend? Oh, this is, I think it's everyone's Bane. It's, <laughs> they haven't liked it. It's, you just can't count on anything from Matt Libator from St. Louis right now. He's coming out of the bullpen. That's what they're talking about using him. He may be potched like a spot start here and there. So I just think he's going to be frustrating. Like you're going to be like, they're not going to know how they're going to use him this week. They didn't know. They're like, Oh, we're going to use him on the bullpen start. We don't know. The team has said, so by the time you have to set your lineup, you don't know. He might throw the, go out the bullpen and throw two innings, or he might have a start and then he might. Okay. They're using him out of the bullpen for a week or two. And they're like, okay, I just sit him on my bench and then he gets a start or two that week. And you wanted him in. I think he's going to be frustrating until there's more clarity. That lack of clarity came into the weekend. It was obvious on Sunday. I kind of stayed away from him, putting up any huge bids, except for in one league where I really needed some pitching. And I was like, well, I'm just going to take the pain because all these other sad pitchers I have in my roster are also a pain. <laughs> like, I'm just like, oh, I'll just <laughs> like, he, there's no difference between him and what they are. And if, even if I get reliever innings, I, I need to hit, hit a home run. And he's the one home run that's out there. So I think that's like the only instance you should be kind of getting him. I'd rather have both of those Dodger pitchers right now, Bobby Miller and um, Gavin Stone. Oh yeah, for sure. But, but in Matt Liberatore's defense, I think we could say it's still a fairly young season. There's still a lot of runway ahead for all the teams and maybe St. Louis loses a guy to injury. Maybe circumstances just force them into making some kind of change with his status. And he does end up being in a somewhat more valuable role just because he seems to have the skills to justify them making that decision. Uh, Jeff Zimmerman's Boone's Lane Thomas of Washington, uh, James Paxton of Boston, if he's available in your league, probably isn't. And Matt Strom of Philadelphia, his Baines, Mark Vientos of the Mets, Matt Liberatore of St. Louis. 
Gosh, Jeff, this has been terrific. Remind our listeners where they can keep up with your work. Um, yeah, main thing is right now I'll just be writing at um, Rotographs area at Fangraphs, and I'll tweet out every once in a while at Jeff W. Zerman. Um, that's pretty much it. Like I said, I don't have much of a presence otherwise. We'll have the Launch Angle podcast that hopefully comes out every other comes out to the the whole public every other week. And then um, Rob Pietro puts one of them, the other one, always behind his Patreon. It's actually kind of a nice little, um, for $5 to the Discord, they have some good stuff going on there, helping them set up the lineups and trying to find some stuff, <laughs> make some of his other podcasts available there too. So um, no, that's all I'm doing right now. My life is just kind of busy otherwise. So there's not a lot of extra. And then once the season gets over, it's back into trying to get in the, working on the process. Well, it's a terrific book, uh, The Process by Jeff Zimmerman and Tanner Bell. It's available every year, usually what a m- We aim to have it done at the first of the year. There's oh, okay. always so, so much our to-do list and it keeps like growing every year because it's like we don't get that done and then we come up with new ideas. But we usually kind of draw the line there. Um and then just have the we'll have the digital copy available for people over Christmas, and then the paper copy goes off into this void, and becomes available anywhere from a month to a week later. It differs year to year. It's um, it's kind of funny. I've seen other places do that. It's Baseball HQ. Their digital one comes out, and it's like, when's the paper? And like, don't know. And like, yeah, you're probably dealing with publishers also. It's like you still yeah, know. Yeah. You've sent it to them, and it's out of your hands. Like I said, you've done everything you can. You just hope that they can do it at a fast pace. So yeah, it's it's a uh, the digital thing works better, but there's nothing like having the book in your hands. I, I don't know. I'm I'm still like that. I read almost entirely on my reader, but there's certain things that I like to have the book to just to flip back and forth, and you know, it's a it's a bit more fun that way. Jeff, uh, I always l- really enjoy talking with you in Irish bars, where I can't even hear what you're saying. It's always fun. <laughs> <laughs> And we'll talk to you again during the year. There's more stuff in the in the process that I'd like to go over with you. I hope we can uh, hook up uh, once or twice more. Sounds good, Patrick. Jeff Zimmerman writes at Rotographs and in the Process Fantasy Baseball Manual and appears regularly on the Launch Angle podcast. Coming up, we have our Baseball HQ commentaries. The Minor League Minute, Frequent Flyer, and My Extra Innings comment are all on the way. But first, one last reminder of the resources available to you when you subscribe to BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the daily call-ups report, the Baseball HQ scouting team has the insights on the latest call-ups, including Angels right-hander Sam Bachman, Cincinnati right-hander Eduardo Salazar, Dodgers right-hander Bobby Miller, Cleveland catcher Bo Naylor, and all the call-ups. And don't miss the Eyes Have It Prospect podcast. In this week, Chris Blessing opens up his scouting notebook. I've mentioned a few of the resources on the site now at BaseballHQ.com, and believe me when I say they're just the tip of the iceberg of all the great content and tools you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. There's player performance validation in Facts and Flukes, news updates in Playing Time Today, and roster forecasting in Playing Time Tomorrow. We have buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers, fantasy market analysis in the Market Pulse, long shot suggestions in the Speculator column, team injury reports, and player injury analysis in the Big Hurt, 
gaming strategy analysis for Roto, Points Leagues, NFBC, and alternative formats, and groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, there are those tools like the player projections updated every day, updated depth charts, daily dashboards, pitcher matchup planners, bullpen indicators, batter consistency reports, complete pitcher PQS logs, potential sergers and faders, and leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. So when you add it all up, you get the expert content plus the tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio PD here. Time now for our Baseball HQ commentaries. Coming up, we have the frequent flyer and my extra innings comment. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a look at Detroit third base prospect Colt Keith is Baseball HQ scouting team member Rob Gordon. The Detroit Tigers' rebuild got off track with a 66-99 record last year, and with few offseason moves, expectations for 2023 were modest at best. The club got off to a slow start, but improvements from former top prospects Riley Green and Spencer Torkelson and a solid bullpen have helped turn things around quickly. Certainly playing in the AL Central doesn't hurt, but heading into the Memorial Day weekend, the Tigers trail only the first-place Minnesota Twins. While the Tigers have played better in May, they still have one of the more anemic offenses in baseball and have scored the second-fewest runs in the AL, lagging behind even the lowly Oakland A's. With Torkelson and Green losing their rookie eligibility last year, the club doesn't have any surefire offensive prospects in the upper minors, but one player worth keeping an eye on is third baseman Colt Keith. Keith, a natural third baseman, was a fifth-round pick in the COVID-shortened 2020 draft out of high school in Mississippi. The 21-year-old Keith has always had a solid power profile, but scouts were mixed on his ability to find the barrel on a regular basis. Keith quickly put those concerns to rest and is now a career 300 hitter. He had a solid season last year for High A West Michigan and is in the midst of a breakout campaign this year for Double A Erie. Through 38 games, Keith is slashing 318 with a 391 on base percentage and a very impressive 573 slugging percentage with 9 doubles and 9 home runs. While there's still some swing and miss to his game, Keith is just starting to tap into his raw power and could be in line for promotion soon. At the major league level, the Tigers have gotten very little production from third base from the combination of veteran Jonathan Scope and newcomer Nick Maton. While Keith probably isn't in line for an immediate promotion to the majors, if the Tigers can stay in contention in the AL Central, he could be up after the break and really doesn't have anyone blocking his path. Long-term, Colt Keith is the Tigers' third baseman of the future and has the potential to hit 280 with 20-plus home runs on a regular basis. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Baseball HQ scouting team member Rob Gordon has his Minor League Minute report here regularly at Baseball HQ Radio. Now it's time for the Frequent Flyer, where we look at a player who might be available on your league's free agent list and who has the skills to contribute to the success of your teams. Here with a look at Cincinnati left-handed starting pitcher Andrew Abbott is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. He's the epitome of what all the old school guys want, but he does it in the new school fashion. Chattanooga Lookouts pitching coach Brian Garman said, according to the Cincinnati Inquirer's Charlie Goldsmith back on April 17th, that sounds pretty good, but this sounds even better. According to MLB Pipeline, Sam Dykstra on May 24th, soon-to-be 24-year-old on June 1st, Cincinnati Red Southpaw Andrew Abbott, the Red second-round pick in 2021, 
Leads the minor leagues in strikeouts and strikeout percentage at 45% through 40 and two-thirds innings at AA Chattanooga and AAA Louisville. Of course, it appears that article was even published before Abbott's six-inning, nine-strikeout gem against Syracuse later that day. Oh, Yet even with 82 punchouts in only 47 innings pitched while sporting a 2.49 ERA and a stellar .94 whip in 2023, Abbott's 2.66 batting average on balls in play, well below his career 3.29 Babbitt, suggests possible regression. That's why 23-year-old Cincinnati Red strikeout artist Andrew Abbott, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. Once again, the Cincinnati Inquirer's Charlie Goldsmith opined on April 17th that Abbott's fastball looks like it defies gravity and appears to rise out of his hand. Baseball HQ's Chris Blessing has scouted starts that Abbott's four-seam fastball was a monster. In his April 20th Miners column on BaseballHQ.com, Chris elucidated that the four-seamer's riding action, which was measured at over 17 inches of inverted vertical break last season, was unrelenting. Of course, there has been some debate in the industry as to whether the pre-tack ball used at AA would have had a greater impact on induced vertical break as opposed to the big league ball used at AAA and the majors in 2023. I averaged probably 15 to 18 inches of vert with a big league ball, and I was like 21 inches at double-A, Abbott was quoted as saying, again referencing Sam Dykstra's May 24th MLB Pipeline Pitching Lab article on MLB.com. Worth noting, in the same article, Abbott describes his curveball, not his monster fastball, as his bread and butter. That's a bold statement. That fastball's amazing. The Pitching Lab article also happens to mention that Abbott's sweeper has 17 inches of horizontal break. So according to Abbott, again quoted by Dykstra, they're not only seeing fastballs up and curveballs down, they're also seeing the sweeper breaking horizontal glove side as well. In other words, look out for soon-to-be 24-year-old Cincinnati Red Southpaw Andrew Abbott is our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Extra Innings, my weekly comment on baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I want to talk about the pending arrival of the robo-umps. There's an excellent story this week at ESPN.com by Jeff Passan about a broad experiment underway to test the automated balls and strike systems at the AAA level. They're calling it ABS, which is kind of too bad because it's the same abbreviation used for anti-lock braking systems with their unfortunate connotations of dangerous skids and deadly crashes. Passan reports that the system is technologically ready. And I quote, after nearly 20 years of tinkering, upgrading, testing, failing, and repeating the process, the current incarnation of ABS is a technological marvel. It's pieces and parts big league ready. Now the part that still seems to be up for grabs is the implementation. In AAA on Tuesdays and Thursdays, the system is completely automated. The ABS unilaterally determines balls and strikes, pings the umpire's earpiece when there's a strike, and he makes the call, or rather relays the call, to the players and fans. It's all very fast, so there's no more time lag between the pitch and the call than some umps already have. 
On Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays, they're using a different method. The home plate ump makes the calls of balls and strikes using just his eyes. Please keep your seeing eye dog references to yourself. But either the hitter or the catcher can challenge the call by tapping the top of their head. The call is reviewed like in tennis, and a decision gets rendered in about 10 seconds. Each player gets three unsuccessful challenges per game. Now, I've long advocated for automating the ball and strike calling because I've umpired myself. And I know from that experience, it's nearly impossible to get all the calls right and completely impossible to get all the calls right at the very edges of the zone. The catcher usually blocks your view of the low outside corner and the ball's significant movement through a five-sided invisible prism floating at various heights above the plate simply defies human visual acuity. Even the seeing-eye dog can't pick it up with 100% accuracy, but the Hawkeye system can, and that's why it should be used. Let's get the errors out of that part of baseball. Now, I have some quibbles with how the system is being set up in AAA. The Hawkeye system completely redefines the strike zone, setting the top at, and I quote, 51% of the player's height, basically the belt line, maybe a little bit below, and sets the bottom of the zone at 27% of the player's height, roughly around the bottom of the kneecap. This actually corresponds pretty well with the current zone as we see on the TV box, and as most umpires call it, frankly, but it isn't the strike zone in the rulebook. More importantly, the ABS strike zone is going to rob some of the game's best pitchers because it doesn't use the full depth of the plate. A sweeper that just clips that outside edge at the front of the zone, that should be a strike. And so should a high sinker that catches just the top of the zone right at the back part of the plate. But those won't be strikes with ABS because ABS measures the pitch only at one depth, a flat two-dimensional plane halfway between the front of the plate and the point at the back. But like I said, I think these are quibbles. The benefit of the calls being consistently right outweighs all the other stuff. Now, I do prefer the fully automated strike calling to the challenge system, although I can see the added dramatic appeal of a challenged pitch late in the game, bases loaded, score tied, two out bases loaded. Was it a ball four or strike three? A Kyle Glazer story in Baseball America early this month quoted Morgan Sword, Major League Baseball's executive VP of Baseball Operations, discussing what he called the geometry of the zone. Sword said, and I quote, Coming up with a strike zone to load into the ABS system that will produce ball strike calls that make sense to both teams and promote the kind of on-field outcomes that we're trying to promote is, we are finding, a very tricky problem. The ESPN story says there might be deliberate tweaks to the ABS zone to reduce strikeouts and get more balls in play. Tricky indeed, but well worth figuring out. And they will figure it out. The one thing nobody is mentioning, but I'll bet they're all thinking about, is the effects of ball strike umpire calls on baseball gambling. With the game snuggling up close to the bookmakers and encouraging fans to wager on baseball, they don't want the kind of uproar they would have gotten had there been betting on, say, an Eric Gregg game when he calls a strike a foot and a half off the plate to end the World Series, even if it's by accident. And they sure as hell don't want a Tim Donahue behind the plate manipulating balls and strikes to suit the money line bets that he made. I mentioned at the outset the unfortunate parallel between the initials ABS and the dangers and car crash implications of anti-lock braking. But you know what? 
Leaving aside the abstract connotative parallel, the fact remains that anti-lock braking makes things better for driving and drivers. This other ABS, I think it can make things better for baseball. For BaseballHQ.com, I'm Patrick Davitt, and I have my extra innings commentary here on Baseball HQ Radio pretty much every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, May the 26th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 18 of the 2023 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest expert for this Friday Full Edition, Jeff Zimmerman, from Rotographs, the Launch Angle Podcast, and the Process Fantasy Baseball Manual, Jeff is one of fantasy baseball's premier researchers and a real innovator in the space, and he's of course a lot of fun to talk with as well. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch news analyst was Ray Murphy from Baseball HQ. Our Minor League Minute commentator was Baseball HQ scouting team member Rob Gordon, and our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, your extra innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you catch your pods, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners when you do that, and new listeners help us keep the podcast going. If your pod getter of choice doesn't find Baseball HQ Radio, let us know about that or anything else on your mind by emailing bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another Friday Full Edition featuring Vlad Sedler, the fab whisperer at FTN Fantasy and the co-host of the FTN Fantasy Baseball podcast. And in the weeks ahead, we'll have more top-notch guest experts, including Eno Saris from the Athletic and the Rates and Barrels podcast and Rob DiPietro from the Dead Pull Hitter and Launch Angle podcast, plus all the usual great stuff, our news analysis and our Baseball HQ commentaries. That's Vlad Sedler on next Friday's full edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Talk with you again next Friday. And for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.